Hello, this is Don and Dylan. Welcome to the Medical Minute. We're broadcasting live from the beautiful metropolis of Denver, Colorado, where the mountains are tall, the women are beautiful, the men are mostly bearded, and the medical providers are all experts in the treatment of cyclical vomiting. I'm Dylan Lloyden. I'm your co-host, an emergency physician with CarePoint in Denver, Colorado. My personal interests are EMS, administration, and resuscitation. My co-host, Don Stater. Don, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm also an emergency physician here at CarePoint. Uh, my personal interests are long walks on the beach, um, romantically gazing into others' eyes, fine red wine, and I also like medical podcasting and documentary filmmaking. For those of you who've never listened to The Medical Minute before, this is our 100th episode, which is crazy because we just started this thing in February of this year, three months ago. And we are defined, our credo, our modus operandi is the belief that we are raw, we are real, and we are relevant. Real refers to the fact that we are real emergency physicians and emergency pharmacists recording these podcasts live during a busy community ER shift. And what do you mean by raw, Dylan? Raw means uh, wash your hands after listening to this podcast. It means that um, these are unedited. These are the kind of uh, brain droppings, if you will, of busy clinicians who are kind of delivering information that's uh, important to them. I've always wanted to be relevant. How is this podcast relevant, Dylan? I think it remains to be seen. But <laughs> our vision is that somebody who's in themselves in community practice, maybe they're a, a physician, maybe they're an EMS provider, maybe they're a nurse, maybe they're a medical student or a resident, um, would be interested in our content because this is the stuff that matters to us in the busy, as we said, community practice. These are the things that we want our colleagues to know working side by side in, a, in the trenches of uh, emergency medicine. And for all you listeners out there, all you nurses, all you paramedics, all you PAs and NPs, and all you emergency physicians, what this means is this podcast is for you. We want to share knowledge together, and we want to partner with you to make each of us smarter, better, more intelligenter clinicians. Let's do this. When something isn't right and you don't know what to do, go to the ER where the docs treat you. But what are they thinking and how do they know what's wrong? Come listen to their insight. It's emergencymedicalminute.com. Real, raw, relevant ER med education. As Don said, this is our 100th podcast, which is unbelievable because it's only been a couple of months, as he said. We record these things live every day. Uh, in our emergency departments, uh, in our practice. Dylan, I'm really excited because besides me and you, we actually have a true celebrity helping introduce many of our segments. Stephen Hawking. That guy's smart. And damn, can he introduce segments of the Medical Minute. Thank you, Don, for that kind sentiment, even though it means nothing from someone so inferior to my intellect. What we're going to do today is kind of break it down. We're going to take what we think are uh, reasonable sample, top 10, but based basically on uh, our own personal opinion, uh, based on uh, the number of listens. Uh, and we're going to break them down, and then we'll bundle these uh, separately so you can listen to them. Uh, we also picked a theme for the day, which is the 
ever sexy, ever relevant uh, topic of uh, cardiology. Cardiology makes my heart pitter-patter. Literally, literally, Dylan. But we think we're going to go through a lot of really cool things that you're going to be able to take home from this podcast, put in your pocket, and then bring out next time you have some of these patients on a shift. Because tell me the last time you didn't have a run or a shift where you didn't see someone with chest pain or with palpitations or syncope or something related to the heart. It's really at the heart of what we do, pun intended. So let's jump into the top 10 list out of the first 100 Daily Medical Minute podcasts. Now, if you're listening to this, you've probably discovered our website, emergencymedicalminute.com. But if you haven't, you need to go over there and check us out. On this pod, we're summarizing or critiquing 10 of our favorites, but there's just so much goodness to be found on the site. So check it out, emergencymedicalminute.com. We'll take these top 10 and bundle them together so you can listen to them in sequence separately. We hope this whets your appetite, if you haven't heard them already. Introducing the top 10 podcasts of the first 100 podcasts. It's like a beautiful supernova exploding into your ears. So delicious and educational. Yummy. Part 1. So podcast number 10 is the tale of Alexis St. Martin. And it's presented by our friend and colleague, Dr. Chris Holmes. This is really a cautionary tale about uh, physicians gone wild. And it tells the heart-wrenching tale of the discovery of protonics. Actually, Uh, not really. Ah, the good days when medical ethics were at the wayside. And you can sign sign up patients to be your manservants. It's it's impressive stuff, and uh, it's well told. Number nine. Number nine is by our very own co-host, Dylan Loyton, and it's about difficult IV access. And it's a quick, concise run-through of a new way to secure IVs with Dermabond. So on all those difficult IV sticks that you really can't lose that IV, think of using Dermabond. Yeah, I like this one. This was, uh, I chose that one because it was Nurses Week, and this is a nice uh, nursing-centric one. But uh, this is EMS week, and I think this equally could, could potentially be EMS-centric. Uh, this, this applies, so to speak. I mean, we don't have uh, Dermabond in uh, the field, but maybe we should. Number eight goes back to you, Don, talking about isopropanol for control of nausea. This is a cool trick. Uh, I haven't done it, uh, but I know the nurses do it, and uh, I've heard that it works great. Yep, it's crazy. All these little alcohol pads that we have around. Uh, can sometimes help people with nausea. And I've used it once or twice with variable success. So is it the isopropanol or is it just a really strong smell? Well, you know, the uh, the term we've created for this is olfactory distraction. Right. And the truth is no one knows. It's some like gatekeeper phenomenon in the brainstem, right? There's yeah. some... some so that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the proposal. Uh, I, I just find it amusing to tell patients to, to huff alcohol. In front of me. I saw something about a company that was bringing to market a very strong peppermint uh, oil with, I think, the same idea. Of course, we would prefer peppermint. At least most of us would. Okay, switching gears. We are at number seven, lucky number seven, by Eric Verzemniks. Dr. Verzemniks talks to us about baby botulism, flaccid babies. And what he points out is we don't only have to worry about honey. But in a lot of agrarian slash agricultural communities, these spores are found in the dirt and in the air. So there are clusters of kids who come in sometimes from these 
farming communities who have baby botulism, flaccid babies, need to be intubated. Scary stuff. Something to keep on our list of flaccid babies. I like this topic. The uh, So personally, like I remember when my kids were little uh, and, you know, kids cough and nothing works for cough and we're not allowed to give kids cough medicine, although we do, uh, but, um, at least I do, but, uh, but honey, right. We know honey worked for coughing, but then there's that whole thing of, well, if they're under a year, it's a year, right? The honey and the botulism and the kids, it's a year. I think it's six months, but I think okay. we still, I think I feel over a year. I often don't recommend it to parents until their kids are little toddlers and walking yeah. around. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that conversation I'm usually having, it's like the bronchiolitis season slash croup slash flu slash you know whatever it is viral season thing in the winter and the mom or the dad is totally freaked out and stressed out and I mean we, we and it's nice to offer them the honey thing it's interesting I've never seen it I, I I think about it I look for it probably missed it um I don't know have you ever seen a case infant no bo- I've never seen infant botulism but the snotty kid have you seen the Swedish product no. So if you go to Baby RS, there is this product that is this little cone that you jab in your kid's nose, and then you put it to your mouth, oh, and you delicious. suck You suck out the snot. Delicious. It's, yeah, just gross. But it's got to be better than those little bulbs, bulbs that we give patients, parents. Number six brings us around to one of my favorite topics, which is ketamine. Uh, my fellow EMS physician, Dr. Michael Hunt, speaks on uh, our love of ketamine. Um, there's little to add here, right? Ketamine, what is it not good for? We use it for virtually everything. I mean, I can't, it's weird. Like I, you know, I'm about, what am I, 16 years out of residency? And uh, I mean, I think of all the chest tubes and all these painful things we used to do when I was a resident and basically people just sucked it up and and, and got tortured. And now, I, I mean, I got, I, there's not a shift that goes by that I'm not giving somebody the ketamine. Love it. Yeah, good for pain, good for sedation, good for the agitated patient. Questionably good for seizures now and also depressed people. We should be putting this crap in the water, Dylan. Yeah, yeah. So I've used ketamine. So so I've had um, mixed success with ketamine for like the intractable chronic painters. I know there's been interest in that, like giving uh, the migraineurs and the like recurrent abdominal painters ketamine. I had a very interesting experience um, recently. I had a patient who had. Uh, it was funny because this was even covered in a, in a, in a, a, a popular um, continuing education podcast, and I actually had the actual case myself. But it was a, a patient who came in in the middle of the night with um, clearly vocal cord dysfunction, and it was very dramatic. It was very impressive. It was associated with a lot of drama and excitement uh, in the emergency department and at triage initially, and then in a room. The vital signs were very abnormal. Um, it was a high tension moment initially, but it was clearly it was clearly VCD. So I did all the usual VCD tricks, Ativan, my most soothing, very white voice, all the things that we try, and it nothing nothing worked and nothing got better. I ended up giving the ketamine and made the decision to grab the um, video scope and took a look down there when the patient was uh, fully ketaminized to just. I was paranoid that maybe I was wrong and there was a, mm-hmm. something down there, a tumor or a piece of food or some, an infection. I didn't know what. So I, I did, I did uh, scope the person and, and it was a, a totally normal hypopharynx. Um, 
anyway, she, she got better. The, the, uh, the, the VCD broke and then it only, it came back. You know, she woke up 20 minutes later, it was back. And, uh, long story short, we finally kind of got things under control. She went home. Well, the interesting thing, I was back the next week on an evening shift and the same patient came back specifically requesting ketamine. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. That's, that vocal cord dysfunction. You pick up one of those on the board and you immediately give a big sigh to yourself and know that you're going to have a battle. It's like the cyclic vomiter of yeah. the upper body. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, it's weird. It's like I've seen a ton of VCD over the years and this was the first time I had like the bounce back VCD. It, it threw me for a loop. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm yeah. just surprised, Dylan. Your very white voice is very powerful. I mean, I've seen this literally keep keep a whole department in a trance. So the fact it didn't Thank work you. must have meant this was the most severe case ever. Number five is on a really cool topic. And this is given by Dr. Peter Bakes. Pete gives us a great rundown on atrial fibrillation. He goes all the way through the initial diagnosis and basically what's on our differential through practice management, through whether we should cardiovert or not, through we, whether we should anticoagulate or not. This is a powerful seven-minute podcast that comes in at number five. Yeah, this was a sweet primer on uh, on AFib. The, uh, and AFib has to be, right, like in the top 10 of any ER discussion. It's just such a part of the fabric of the emergency department, whether it's chronic and whether it's complicating the presentation of some other illness, whether it's new onset, whatever it is, it's 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 such a such a part of our lives in the ER. I was thinking about this and thinking about Pete's discussion of the triggers, and obviously acute coronary syndrome is described as a uh, inciting phenomenon. I would say that I don't think I've ever seen new AFib as the presentation of an ACS. I mean, I. I may have missed it. Uh, I've certainly seen patients with ischemic heart disease with a with uh, with a fib, uh, but I don't think I've ever seen that as like the standalone presentation of new AFib. Have you seen that? You know, no, Dylan. And 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 one of the things is when people come in with AFib, it's not that the ischemia in my mind causes the AFib, but I oftentimes wonder if they're ischemic because of the AFib, meaning they have coronary disease. Suddenly their heart rate's going at one forty to one sixty. They've got this demand ischemia, and then when you actually get the EKG, it looks somewhat ischemic. And when you get the trope, it's minimally bumped. The question is, what is it? Is it the chicken or the egg? Are they an AFib because of the ischemia, or do they have ischemia because of the AFib? So I agree. But one thing I do know is if you look like you're having true ischemic, true ischemia because of your AFib, you're gonna get you're gonna go very quickly toward pads for me, because that makes you unstable. Do you send a troponin on your non-ischemic sounding AFib guy. Shows up, he's well appearing, he's in AFib, RVR, first time, he's got absolutely no chest pain, he looks absolutely well. Do you send a troponin? No, no, I don't. If, if it's a good story, he's not having chest pain, having palpitations, It's how is that gonna change my management? If we get this guy out of AFib, and then he's got a non-ischemic EKG and he feels great, having a troponin that's slightly bumped isn't going to make me keep him in the hospital. Uh, I think I think it's one of those things where it doesn't change your practice. Why send the test? I have certainly done it, you know, and then a couple of times certainly wished I didn't. Now, I would say like of the acutely sick new AFibbers, I've seen a couple patients where that is the presentation of PE. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of patients 
super unstable, you know, new AFib, cardioverting them, they're still super unstable and it's, and it's PE. And I think an important distinction that I've noticed kind of over the course of my practice is, is it just paroxysmal AFib in a healthy person where you're going to get them in a normal rhythm, you're going to send them home, or you're going to slow them down enough, anticoagulate them or send them home? Or is the AFib because of something else? And if the AFib is because of something else, then it's a totally different conversation. If it's because they've got an infection, because they've got a PE, because they've got some other process that's driving their heart to act erratically, that's a totally different patient. And my magic number for cardioverting AFib is three. If I try to cardiovert you three times and you're still in AFib, you know what? I am not doing you any good. I've got to find out what the underlying process is and I've got to treat that because I'm hitting my head against a wall. And uh, the other thing, just surprising as heck that Pete, Pete uh, doesn't have time to get to in his, in his uh, podcast is the fact that we send so many more AFibbers home than I used to. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely true. We used to admit all these people. Yeah. It used to be, hey, AFib with RVR, you've punched your ticket to the hospital, congratulations. But now we rate control them. I try to get them rate control in the ED. I start them on antiarrhythmics. Uh, and then if I'm not going to cardiovert them, if they're well rate controlled, I basically send them home with anticoagulation and, and cardiology follow-up, which I think is a, is a great change. Yeah, absolutely. Totally, totally different than, than the way it used to be. Yeah, I, that was another thing that I thought was interesting. Uh, Pete does a great uh, breakdown of the Chad's VAS score, uh, which c- clearly is something that we, we do and should uh, document. But it was interesting because my personal practice is I don't care what the Chad's VAS score is. I, I put everybody on, uh, on any coagulation. What's your, what's your practice? You know, I think, I think you harp on something that's really important is the most catastrophic outcome anyone with AFib can have is really stroke. That's the great white shark in the ocean. That's the thing that we want to prevent. But I do not put everyone on anticoagulation. Uh, And maybe it's because I just see the other side of that where people fall, people bleed, people have bleeding ulcers. It's a potentially deadly drug. So I actually go by the Chad's VAS score. If they've got two or more, I'm going to recommend to you after a discussion about whether we should be on an anticoagulant or not. What I find is sometimes people Sometimes people are all in for it. They really fear a stroke. Other times they're really resistant to starting a potentially dangerous medication. So at the end with me, it's going on that score and having a really good informed discussion with the patient that makes me decide whether they're going to be on an anticoagulant or not. Classic medicine conundrum, right? The people who need the, the anticoagulation are the people who are at the most risk of being on the anticoagulation because they're old and comorbid and they fall and those are the ones who are going to get strokes and at the same time the young ones who uh probably have very little risk of being on anticoagulation probably don't probably don't need it i I do feel like in i don't know if it's unique to colorado or not but obviously we've got a very active outdoor loving uh uh adventure sport loving patient population there are a lot of people right who you see in the er and they're in afib and they're healthy and their main question to me is, Doc, when can I go snowboarding? You know, and 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 those are the ones who are like, oh, man, I, I don't want to put you on an anticoagulant because I would feel the same way. A couple of times, AFib has been the interesting, like, glimpse into the patient with problem drinking, who that may be essentially their presentation. I've had a couple of patients present, and then in the course of the workup, it's clear they're, they're, they're a you know, moderate to heavy uh, drinker. 
and this is like the sort of come to Jesus moment for the family, for the patient. And, and so sometimes you, you turn up something kind of unexpectedly, maybe beneficial to the, to the individual. Oh yeah. Holiday heart. And I'll tell you what I've worked. I don't know if you feel the same way, Dylan. I've worked across the country from Charlotte to Arizona, up to, up to basically, uh, sorry, up to Oregon, down to, down to Texas and Colorado people drink harder here as young people than anywhere else I've been. I've seen, I've never seen so many young alcoholics, which is a sad commentary, but because of it, we see more holiday hard here. I'm from uh, Cape Cod and there are few people who drink harder than like those uh, winter Cape Cod people. <laughs> but it's probably, it's, uh, I think partly it's like the vacation land uh, phenomenon, right? There's yeah. like something about the vacations. Plus our beer is so damn good. I mean, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's so true. Hopefully you never see me with holiday heart. Okay. So that is it for our first part of top 10. At the end of the podcast, we're going to count down to number one. Continuing our theme of cardiology, I want to talk a little bit about the syncope. Syncope is a transient. Self-limited loss of consciousness with an inability to maintain postural tone that is followed by spontaneous recovery. Dylan, I wish I can syncope into your welcoming arms and hear you discuss the finer points of medical management. There are a handful of dangerous things out there. I had a recent case of uh, the Brugada syndrome, which uh, we don't see that very often. No, I've only seen one during my, uh, during my residency training when I was on my cardiology month. So it's definitely one of those things that's uh, that's a little bit of a, a needle in the haystack, like you say. Yeah, it, it's pretty interesting, and I like it because it's both uh, both sexy and and uh, and interesting, and it's also it's also one of those quick visual diagnoses. It's almost like the uh, the cardiology equivalent of the the nursemaid's elbow or something. It's like a slam dunk. And, and I think this is one of the things that defines us as emergentologists, right? Where someone has a passing out episode. It could be a young dude. It could be a young chick. And when we get that EKG and we look at it, we know there's a lot of bad crap that could be hiding there. And a lot of people who aren't trained to look at these things are going to miss them. And as a result, people might have a bad outcome. People might die. So this is one of the defining things that makes you a good emergency clinician. So true. So the case was a young patient who was actually brought in by EMS for syncope. And uh, the story was the patient had uh, reported an episode, I think six episodes of uh, fainting in the past week. Hmm. And uh, the patient described several of these episodes occurring uh, while she was in bed in the evening. She was young and otherwise healthy, uh, had no past medical history, took no medicines, was very, very healthy, no substance abuse history, no psychiatric history. She was a pretty straight shooter. And uh, an episode had occurred witnessed by her significant other on the evening when she presented uh, via via uh, 9 system. And when the paramedics arrived, she was essentially asymptomatic, frightened, uh, kind of amnestic for for the episode. But her her boyfriend clearly described an episode of uh, unresponsiveness. I think there was some, maybe a little bit of myoclonic jerking. I think there was a question of could this have been a seizure? It was all a little unclear. And she was initially picked up uh, by one of my colleagues uh, and 
uh, they actually came to me and said, Dylan, look at this EKG. This is weird. And, uh, and there it was laid out before me, the Brugada syndrome. So uh, we'll put a link in here to some images to, uh, to refer to. Shout out to um, uh, Life in the Fast Lane, one of my favorite uh, emergency medicine uh, blogs, websites, uh, which has a really nice piece on this as well. I also am a big fan of, I don't know if you know, Dr. Smith's EKG blog. He's yeah. from Hennepin County. Uh, amazing stuff. Yep. Like truly a deep dive, uh, masterly discussion of these topics, which uh, we won't try to reproduce here. But a couple things about the Brugada syndrome. So it was described, uh, I believe, in 1992 by the Brugada brothers, our two Spanish cardiologists. I believe it had been reported, the, the EKG findings had been described previously, but they were the first to kind of put it together as a, as a syndrome of uh, sudden death uh, from uh, polymorphic uh, VT or VF. Uh, and basically, it is a genetic abnormality, uh, usually uh, represents a defect in the uh, a sodium uh, uh, pump, uh, sodium channel, I should say, in the uh, myocardium, and it predisposes people to ventricular arrhythmias. It has a characteristic appearance on the EKG. There's this sort of pseudo right bundle branch block with this weird-looking dramatic J-point elevation and down-sloping ST-segment depression with T-wave inversion. That's the so-called type 1 Brugada syndrome. In fact, there is only one type of Brugada syndrome, but it can have various manifestations on the 12-lead uh, that they, they, they described as type 1, type 2, type 3, but really there's just one Brugada syndrome. Uh, interestingly, it can be concealed or hidden and can be unmasked by certain drugs, uh, predictably uh, uh, sodium channel poisons. So the, uh, another case of it I saw was years ago is when I was a resident, I had a guy come in who was a polypharm overdose, and he was on doxepin and then had taken a whole bunch of Benadryl. So we had kind of multiple sodium channel poisons on board, and uh, he had the most dramatic kind of Brugada EKG. And he wasn't a syncope patient. He just was uh, tacky and altered from his uh, overdose. But uh, it was interesting. And that can, that is a described phenomenon, this sort of uh, uh, Brugada pattern from sodium channel overdose. Yeah, and I know when, when you, you suspect it, oftentimes an electrophysiologist, cardiologist, will take you to the EP lab and they'll actually give you sodium channel blockers to see if they can just piss off your sodium channel enough and kind of reveal the fact that you might have Brugada syndrome and you might need a pacemaker, or not a pacemaker, a defibrillator, an ICD. The other really impressive thing about this case, Dylan, is the fact it was a female. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you're right, because I, I think it has, so if you look at everybody who, with the diagnosis, uh, it's only like 20% have a defined genetic abnormality. There is that. I think it's autosomal dominant. Yeah. yeah. It's mostly in young Asian men. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The highest, the highest prevalence. Yeah. They say that there are these, there are these villages in, uh, in the mountains I've heard in Thailand where they will dress young men in women's clothing at night, mm -hmm. uh, because the sudden death usually occurs at night. Uh, and there was this idea that there was a spirit that came in the night and like took away uh, young men's souls. Wow. So the idea was you could put these, dress these teenage boys in, uh, in drag basically. 
and uh, and it would save their life. The name, right? There are these various terms for it in in in, in different languages, but I think Lai means uh, death in sleep in oh. in in uh, in Thai, and then uh, I won't try to butcher the word uh if uh, believe i don't know if it's in tagalog or in the philippines but it, it essentially means something like rises from sleep moans and falls dead or something it's a it's a it's a single word uh that refers to it as well so yeah fascinating uh genetics the challenge we have in the er of course we don't see it very often it's one of those things you just have to keep a high index and it's one of the reasons why there's just never a reason not to get an EKG in syncope, right? You know, occasionally you'll stumble on it and, and what do you do? And to your point, to have the Brugada syndrome, you have to have both the EKG finding and a history of sudden death or near sudden death or a family history and a first year relative of it or a recent syncope. So this young woman I described had had syncope and had the EKG, so an AICD was in her immediate future. So let's uh, let's talk about other things that you look for on the EKG. We've got Brugada. That's that's number one. What else are you looking for on the the syncope EKG? For me, it's two other things really besides the you know ischemias or obvious arrhythmias. But it's the other things are are, are WPW, which uh, I won't go into a lot of detail. But I do recall I had a great. EMS case some years ago of a uh, guy who uh, his girlfriend called 911 because he fainted and uh, EMS showed up and the guy adamantly refused. He he was a refusal. And then uh, he came to the ER like two hours later also by uh, 911 because he, he had SVT. And lo and behold, uh, he, uh, he had Wolf-Parkinson-White uh, syndrome and his initial presentation was probably another SVT or maybe even a more dangerous arrhythmia. So that's one thing. And then the other thing um, is a uh, long QT. We look for it. God, I feel like more often there's just a long QT on an EKG I get and I'm just pissed that there's a long QT and I have to deal with it because I want to send the patient home. That's the thing where, where you feel like the person's fine. You feel like, oh my gosh, because there's so many things that cause prolonged QT. It could be congenital. It could be drugs they're on. They could be vomiting and just be low on your I potassium. Think, yeah. I think coming to the ER causes a long QT. <laughs> it's part of the white coat triage syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But it's one of those things, too. you got to be careful with it because you, you don't want to send home the person, too, that's going to go into Tersades and, and you have this EKG that's been staring you in the face. Yeah. This is an important clinical entity, all joking aside. And I did a podcast several months ago for EMS uh, on syncope as a topic. And uh, this is a nice follow-up because in that podcast, I mentioned some of these things and then and then basically said these were beyond the scope of that podcast. So this is our chance to do a deep dive. But um, yeah, this matters. And I, I sometimes have a hard, hard time convincing my EMS colleagues of the importance of, of, a, of a 12 lead in every single syncope patient. But this is, this is, this is a common thing, right? The long QT is much, much more common. So for, I guess just the basics, uh, how do we measure the QT interval? Because I think people forget how to do that. And again, it, it, this is both depolarization and repolarization. So you start at the beginning of the QRS complex and all the way out to the end of the T wave. And 
I think what most of us do, right, is just say it's half the RR or less or more. And if it's more, we're worried. And if it's less, we sort of go, eh. Yep. 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 I mean, that's the quick and dirty. I look, if it looks like it's more than half the RR, I say, man, that looks like a kind of long QT. And then I'll actually rely on the EKG machine and I'll take a look at what their QTC is. You know, some people are sticklers and want to calculate every QT that they see. Frankly, I don't have the time. I'm going to eyeball it and then I'm going to read the number. And if it's long, I'm going to be more worried. I'm going to have to go look for why they've got prolonged QT. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the the problem is that the whole QT measurement thing is like its own little rabbit hole of medicine. Like how, you know, there's all these different correction schemes. Bezets is the one that we all use, The you know, the, the uh, QT divided by the square root of the RR. But that's only one of them. And in fact, there's like this whole science of how do you measure the end of the QT and what if there's a U wave and it's all very much over my head. This is what cardiologists get together in conferences on and blow a day on. And, and to me, it's, you know, thank God there's a machine that measures it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So why, so, so that's the measuring the QT and, and why do we care? I mean, I think we said it, but again, Basically, the take-home point is if your QT corrected is greater than 500 milliseconds, you have an increased risk of torsades, period. So you get this potential R on T phenomena, right, where you get uh, a, a uh, what they call it, was an early after depolarization. It falls on the on that vulnerable period right around the T wave, and then you get a reentrant ventricular arrhythmia, and, and potentially you can die. So that's why we care. Um, how do we? How do they present? Well, I mean, we said already a lot of these are just incidental, but theoretically, these patients might present as uh, as a seizure, which was actually uh, a cardiac syncope. It might present as syncope. Might present as a cardiac arrest, and then sometimes we'll see these patients um, who come in after overdoses and they've they're altered and have abnormal vital signs, and we're not sure what they took, and the QT is hugely helpful as kind of. Uh, helping us sort that out. I think this is a great time to also just remind everyone about how you tell the difference between a seizure and a syncopal episode. Because oftentimes when you have a lay person and they tell you what happened, they'll tell you their loved one fell down and had a seizure. And what they're describing isn't actual seizure activity. It isn't these uncontrolled discharges in the brain, rhythmic discharges. It's myoclonic jerking. And that myoclonic jerking can sometimes look rhythmic. It looks like a seizure. And you really find out whether someone passed out or whether they had the seizure by talking to the person, right? So someone who passed out isn't going to have a long post-ictal time. They're going to remember things. They're going to remember things like feeling lightheaded before they pass out. They're going to remember when their family woke them up and said, hey, are you okay? And then it's also a little bit of the company they keep. Did they have, did they urinate on themselves, defecate on themselves? Did they, did they have that incontinence that we classically think of with seizure? Did they bite their tongue? You know, how long were they down for? All of those really give us a good idea of whether this was a syncopal episode or a seizure episode. And the workup for those are truly different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so true. Uh, the myoclonus thing is, is a huge uh, confounder for, for patients. It does seem like we see that all the time. All right, so why do you get long QTs? Well, we sort of divide it into reversible causes and genetic causes. The reversible ones that we see every day because there are people 
are the uh, electrolyte depleted, particularly hypo-K, hypo-mag, or hypocalcemia. All of those things uh, are common in the ER, and those are probably the most common, uh, I think, along with, uh, with the various medications. Uh, the meds, I think we all know the list is basically the list is the PDR, uh, <laughs> right? So it's everything. But particularly, we have to think about the antipsychotics, the antidepressants, the antihistamines, mm-hmm. and the antibiotics. Okay. Uh, that's sort of how I, I think about that. Um, but th- the reality is, God, there's barely a medicine that doesn't uh, seem to have some some association. Uh, and then congenital um, is a huge topic, but... There's something like 60 specific genetic lesions associated with the long QT syndrome. If you go on the Wikipedia, it carefully describes at least 15 LQT syndromes that are all distinct and discrete and probably aren't that important to us. But there are a couple that are worth knowing. Uh, one of them is the, the LQT1, which is, I think, the most common. It's like 30%. And that's the one which can, I think it's autosomal dominant and can be associated with deafness. So soliciting a family history of deafness can sometimes be a clue. And in fact, it's one of the diagnostic criteria for those syndromes. Uh, and it has a eponym. I just don't remember the name of the eponym. I think it's like Roman Lagan. Oh, yes. The Romano Ward. So Romano Ward is without deafness, but there's another one that's, you're right. Your Romano Ward is one of them. Ah, uh, that's good memory. And, and, uh, I, and I'm glad you mentioned it because definitely on the esoterica that I ask people, I do ask about deafness if I see prolonged QT. Because uh, there's, like Dylan said, two or three of these that are associated with deafness. The other ones, they're totally rando. You know, you got to look at their meds. you got to look at their electrolytes. And if they don't have anything that says, that screams at you, this is why I have prolonged QT, then I call the cardiologist and say, listen, I've got this weird person we had syncope, and I'd like you to work them out for possibly some type of congenital syndrome for prolonged QT. And then you have to decide whether these people spend a night in the hospital with you just to ward off bad spirits or that they basically go home with quick follow-up. And that's a discussion oftentimes between you and the patient, but I usually will err on the side of strongly suggesting admission if it looks like a true prolonged QT. Yeah, I would agree. Like if, if for me, if it's an incidental finding they are on a med, I take them off the med, and I might send them home with close follow-up if they have a PCP. If there's no PCP, you know, it's a little squirrely. But yeah, if they're symptomatic, anything happened and the QT's long, they're just, they're coming in. And I think, I think it's hard to get, get pushback on that. So I guess the last thing I would, or it's a big thing, but the last thing to discuss about this is the treatment. Um, and this is actually really interesting. This is, uh, like uh, Don's comment about the what what makes us good ER clinicians, understanding how to treat uh, polymorphic VT is a uh, is a lovely kind of unique uh, uh, topic worth discussing, and I think has relevancy not just to physicians but to to EMS as well. So the first thing is we kind of divide uh, polymorphic VT into that associated with with uh, a long QT and that not associated with a long QT. And you may not know when you first see it, but if you have polymorphic VT and you don't have a long QT, it's probably ischemia. So those are usually people who are having an MI and it's usually pretty 
pretty friggin' obvious. They're, they're, they have chest pain. They're sick. They're going to the cath lab. And reperfusion is the treatment. And then the other people are the ones with long QTs. And those are the tricky ones. Now, this always used to confuse me, right? Because if you look, read ACLS, it says overdrive pacing. Have you ever overdrive paced? Have you ever done that? For for uh, prolonged QT? Yeah. Yes. You have? Yep. Oh, my God. One, one time. And, and, really? Yep. When I was in... Uh, when I was in, uh, again, residency, and I worked in the cardiac ICU, we had someone who was suffering from torsades. Nice. I would have episodes, and uh, we tried some isoproteranol, and at the end, we ended up overdrive pacing them. Uh, but yeah, that was the only time. So it's, it's rare, but it's important. And I think this is a really cool thing about torsades. I actually really like it as a disease entity, because we all think that when there's tachycardia, there's proarrhythmia. Right? right. The faster the heart goes, the fa- the harder it's working, the more likely you're going to go into some type of arrhythmia. Right. With QT, it's the opposite. The slower the heart goes, the more likely you're going to get an RNT phenomenon, the more likely you're, you're going to have torsades. So bradycardia and prolonged QT is your enemy. It almost rhymes. And yet we put them on beta blockers, right? So it's, it's, it's just confusing all over the place. The pacing thing the way to understand that is that, as Don said, bradycardia is sort of your enemy, that the, you know, the, the QT prolongs relative to the RR. So as the RR comes down, as you're going slower, your QT goes up and your, your target window for, for RNT is greater. Torsades tends to be transient, so they tend to torsade, convert, torsade, convert, and so you pace these people so that they don't have a chance to go back into torsades. Usually you don't have to treat the torsades, you know, in uh, real time, if you will. You know, you may have to shock them, but usually these are like self-limiting, recurring kind of arrhythmias, so you have time to load them with a bunch of mag, you know, uh, correct their K, uh, pace them if, if they keep going into it and, that, and the, those things aren't working. And then crazily, uh, you know, they, they may end up on beta blockers. And I still, I just still, I've read on this, I just don't totally understand it. But I think it's something about it's both suppressing the um, PVCs, right, that trigger the, trigger the, uh, the torsades, but then also it's something that about an actual, like, direct effect on the ion channels, too. Yeah. It's very weird. It's, to me, it's the same way that we calculate a QTC. It's, to me, not worth the brain space to figure out why it works. I just know it does. And to make it simple, you see someone with prolonged QT, they've had episodes of torsades in front of your eyes. Load that guy or load that gal with mag, big dose of mag up front, get your pacers on them, right? Get your pads on them and be ready to shock them. And if they continue to have episodes of torsades, then that's a person you should really consider starting them on isoproteranol or you're going to pace them. You're going to pace them fast so they don't die from torsades. Now tell me, like, if you're pacing them, I, I believe, so let's say the person's in and out of torsades, I hit them with my mag, I, their K has been corrected, and I think we even suggest pushing their K up even a little bit above normal, I've heard. Uh, but um, you, no, I could just throw the pacer on them and set it at 100 and just leave them there, right? I don't have to pace them at 
180 or something. Is that right or am I wrong? No, no. You don't, you don't pace that something ridiculous. 100 is, is totally fine. But the next thing I'm doing is I'm trying to get them to the cardiologist. They're going, they're going to the cardiac ICU. I'm going to put it in an expert's hand. This is a hot potato. I want to pass this thing on once I stabilize them. Dylan, I want to ask you one last thing. It's not really related to uh, syncope. I guess it could be because ischemia can cause syncope. But I've heard a lot of EMS professionals call me on the radio and say, hey, I've got this person who's got a left bundle branch block, but I think they might be having a STEMI. I think they've got chest pain. So why don't you run us through how we read a STEMI in either a left bundle branch block or when someone has a pacemaker? SCARBOS criteria is not as complex as the field of astrophysics, but reading EKG need not be so arduous as unlocking the mysteries of the universe. Listen well, and check out the sexy video on the website emergencymedicalminute.com. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I, I also, I get asked this all the time. A couple of things. One, when we look at cardiac alert, we call them cardiac alerts in our shop. You might know it as a STEMI alert or cath lab direct or whatever it might be known as in your shop. But these are the pre-hospital cath lab activations. Um, when we look at the stand downs, the most common stand down is bundle branch blocks. So the person has a left bundle, and as we know, all left bundles have anterior ST elevation. That's normal part of a left bundle, and they end up with the inadvertent, you know, um, false recognition of a STEMI. From that, a lot of protocols just simply exclude left bundles from the diagnosis. So I think there's two things. One is how does EMS activate the cath lab with left bundle? I would say follow your protocols because your protocol probably excludes it. Having said that, I think we all recognize and skilled EMS professionals included recognize that we can diagnose STEMI with a left bundle. The most famous eponymous criteria are the Sagarabosa criteria, uh, which are well described elsewhere. Um, but the way I describe it to EMS, and I think we're going to put a link right to a video maybe of me uh, scribbling uh, Khan Academy style uh, mm -hmm. to, so you can actually see it real time. To see the video, go to emergencymedicalminute.com and click on videos. So basically what I tell EMS and what I think everybody needs to know is this concept of inappropriate concordance. So if you have a left bundle, and it's also true of a pacemaker, think of if, they, if the QRS goes down, then the T wave and the uh, ST segment are gonna go up. So they are discordant, and that's how they should be. They should go in opposite directions. So if there's a QS wave, then there's J point elevation, ST elevation, and an upright T wave. And if there's an, an uh, a uh, R, dominant R wave for the QRS morphology, then there's going to be an inverted uh, T wave and some ST depression, J-point depression. So if you see somebody who has a concordant uh, T wave uh, deflection and uh, J-point ST segment deflection, so dominant QS complex plus uh, ST depression, that's a problem, and that's probably ischemic. And the opposite is also true. So if you have a dominant uh, R-wave morphology and then you've got uh, uh, J-point elevation and ST-segment elevation, that's probably ischemic. And that's how I do it. Let's kind of keep it simple. Yep, yep. What goes up must come down. And that's an easy way to remember it, is what goes up must come down. That's, what, that's how left bundle branch works. They go in opposite directions. 
they go in the same direction, that's bad juju. That's a STEMI. You're looking at a STEMI if you see that on your left bundle branch blockers. Uh, there's two other things that are a little harder to pick out. Uh, and Dylan, you want to describe those, the two other criteria that make up. And is it scarbosa or is it scarabosa? I think it is scarbosa. Besides concordance, there's also um, two other things that we can look at. And these are things that are not going to jump out at you, but you have to read a little bit finer. And you want to go over those? Yeah. So I honestly, I kind of de-emphasize these because I think they're they're subtle and, and they've been challenged. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a nice paper in Annals published by, I mentioned Dr. Smith, uh, his sort of modifications of the Scarbosa criteria. But essentially what they what it boils down to is sort of extreme uh, ST deflections. I think uh, the tradition is greater than five millimeters yeah. uh, of upwards uh, ST elevation in the anterior, you know, the precordial leads. Um, again, I don't know that I trust myself. Yeah, and, and that's what I learned, is I learned that they either have to be concordant or when you look at your V1 through V3, if there is an ST segment that's elevated, it jumps off the jumps off the page at you, greater than five millimeters, you go, God damn, that looks like a big ST segment. That might be a STEMI. And then the last one is some depression. And uh, I think that that's also anteriorly some depression and a ST segment that looks like a STEMI, that looks a little concave. And I think those are what compromise the three of the scarabosa criteria. And you're right, the big one, the big dog there is concordance. Those other ones are tougher to call. I'll often get a cardiologist on the phone if I really suspect that. But a good story is uh, is also something you have to look for in left bundle branch block. Because while these scarabosa criteria are specific, they are not sensitive. Their sensitivity is like 20%. You can't miss 80% of STEMIs in left bundle branch blocks. So a lot of these people Good story, left bundle, they might be going to cath lab. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I, and we'll close this out, but I think the last thing I would say about that, just to, just a, a reminder to our EMS colleagues that what we call uh, cath lab activations or STEMI alerts or cardiac alerts are designed <laughs> for specificity rather than sensitivity. So there will be patients who you will transport, who you are convinced based on their story and EKG, have ischemic chest pain. But if they don't have ST elevation or meet those kind of narrow criteria for cardiac alert, uh, we may not be taking them directly to the cath lab. And so we do want you to know your protocols and we expect you to follow them. All right, so now uh, Don's going to take us through uh, troubleshooting the pacemaker. Pacemakers and defibrillators. Beepy, beepy, shocky, shocky. What happens when these machines turn against their human overlords? Don't break it down. Break it all down. Pacemakers, defibrillators. And I remember in my training, this was always something that gave me a tremendous amount of anxiety. Uh, because when you have people come in and they say, I think there's something wrong with my pacemaker or my defibrillator, those are high stakes. People's hearts are relying on these things to either keep beating or to rescue them if they go into a terminal rhythm. So this is high stakes medicine right now when you're talking about defibrillator problems, when you're talking about pacemaker problems. And when we see these people is when things go wrong. So it's important that you know how to handle and how to think about these really complex medical implantable devices. First, 
Dylan, do you know who Arn Larson is? I do not. Well, Arn Larson is the first person to ever receive a pacemaker. And it's an awesome story. It's this guy who's Swedish, who is 40, and he's got this family, and he comes down with this terrible viral myocarditis. And at the end of it, they're saying to him, you're going to die. Your heart's basically, your electrical system is shot. He had a heart rate in the 20s. And it took this maverick cardiologist who'd been working on this idea that he could pace the heart externally, who actually put together this device, which he'd been thinking about for a while, and finished it off by sealing it with like super glue and crap. Uh-huh. MacGyver job. He MacGyver job this, jabbed it in this guy's basically heart and paced him. That first pacemaker lasted two hours. <laughs> then it crapped out, right? He got and, it. And poor Arnie Larson died poor, anyway. No, no. No, no. This is the great, the great story. So then he goes right back. He figures out a new pacemaker that lasts for two days. That craps out after two days. He goes back and he puts another pacemaker in this guy. Oh, my God. This guy, Arnie, received 26 pacemakers throughout the course of his life. Wow. He got heart block when he was 40. He outlived his cardiologist. He outlived... He outlived the other doctors who worked on him, all of them. And he died when he was 86 of melanoma of the skin. Oh, my God. And what that tells me is, one, some people, they just won't die. <laughs> yeah, you can't kill old Swedes, basically. I think that's the deal. <laughs> they're, they're tough. They're a hardy people. That was your Swedish reference earlier. That so. was my Swedish yeah, reference. That makes me, makes me proud to, you know, so you're connecting the dots now. So right. the pacemaker was all coming invented. Together for me. Yep. Pacemaker was invented in Sweden. Right? And since that first episode, they've actually really increased in complexity. So when you have one of these things come in, you have to, th I think about them in terms of just three parts. Because I'm not that smart. I'm not Pete Bakes. I'm not you. I am a simple-minded buffoon. And I can remember three things. I can remember, hey, if there's something wrong with the pacemaker, it's either one, the pacemaker. It's either two, the cords that connect the pacemaker to the heart. Or three, it's the heart. If you can remember those three things, you're going to remember what's going wrong with pacemakers and defibrillators. So I always like to talk about complex things in cases, things you might actually see. So let's make up a hypothetical patient. 70-year-old guy. He's got Parkinson's dementia. He's had a history of heart block. And he's been off all of his medications for a week. And his sweetheart of a wife gives EMS a call because this guy just keeps on falling down and passing out and he is not doing well. And when you first see him as a clinician, as a paramedic or as a doctor, you look at this guy and he is pale, he looks like crap. Before you put your leads on him, you feel his pulse and it is 40. You undress him and you see that he's got a pacemaker in his left chest wall. So one question, what's his core status? This course, oh, this is a great question. I, I wish that, I think that's oftentimes the first question we should ever ask people who are old and maybe in this really decrepit state. But he's, for the sake of this, he is full core. Okay. He is full All core. Right. He's gonna, of course he is. He's going to live as of long as he, he can, okay? So, is he Swedish? He, <laughs> he is not. All right. <laughs> so, you, you, you basically bring this guy in. And when you're bringing him in, you're thinking, okay, what could go wrong? And let's go through the list of what causes bradycardia with pacemakers. So let's talk about number one. It's the pacemaker, right? Right. So if I've got an old guy who's got a pacemaker and his heart's slow and I look at his tracing and I don't see pacer spikes, 
I think it's probably a pacemaker problem. Yeah, it's the pacemaker problem. Who knows? Maybe maybe that guy hasn't had his pacemaker battery replaced in a long time. He doesn't go to his cardiologist. Maybe that thing is shorted out. There's a problem with the pacemaker, right? Maybe maybe uh, he fell on it and broke the pacemaker, right? So it's a pacemaker problem. You don't see pacer spikes, right? The next thing is, okay, well, what connects the pacemaker to the heart? And you can think, well... What if it's the actual wires that are wrong, right? And here we think of things like disruption. We think of the wires coming out of the heart, you know? We think of, uh, we think of also, what if the wires are missensing something? And there's, a, there's something that you have to know about pacemakers, is that to pace, they actually sense what the heart is doing and respond appropriately. So there's a condition called oversensing where the pacemaker might pick up other things as electrical activity and say, hey, the heart is beating at a fast enough rate. So that might be hiccups, which have been known to cause this. Hmm. So it actually picks up the contractions of the diaphragm and says, hey, that's the heart beating. It can be muscular activity. So sometimes people, well, it's been described, people doing push-ups or people flexing. Sometimes people who get rigors, Riggers from just being sick with flu, etc., will have their pacemakers stop working because the pacemaker says, oh, I guess the heart's beating at around 80 a minute because the person is shaking at around 80 times a minute. So in this case, we're saying that the pacemaker works right, but the sensitivity is set wrong. Is that, is yes, that right? That, okay. that the wire- so battery works, wires are hooked up, exactly. but the pacemaker is just too sensitive. So yep. we need a Thicker-skinned pacemaker, if you will. Exactly. So over-sensing leads to under-pacing is what that's called. But what you'll see often on your EKG is you'll see there's an absence of pacemaker spikes. Maybe there's one or two, but sometimes you'll pick up other artifact, other electrical contractions that the, that the pacemaker is also seeing and mistaking for the heart beating normally. That is over-sensing. Right. Yeah. Now, finally, let's say the pacemaker is working fine. Let's say the wires, you've got a chest x-ray, the wires look like they look great, there's no disruption, there's nothing else like that. It could be the heart. And there's a few things that actually increase the heart's refractory period to shock. The little shock that your pacemaker gives you, there's some things that can make the heart insensitive to that. In which case, you'll see pacemaker spikes, but you won't see capture. So you won't see a contraction after that. And in terms of things that do that to the heart, it could be one, ischemia. If the part that the heart is actually attached to, the pacemaker spike, is dead or right. dying, it's going to be refractory. Right. The other thing that can cause that is acidosis. So sometimes, let's say this guy has been falling and he's dry as heck and he's acidotic because of lactic acidosis, that can make the heart misbehave and cause him to be refractory to the pacemaker spikes. Okay? And then the other things are medications. If he's overdosed on some type of medication that kind of decreases the heart's reactivity, some beta blocker, etc., that's another thing that can cause it. But when I see a slow EKG with a pacemaker, I go through those steps. Is it the pacemaker? Do I see spikes at all? Or is that pacemaker crapped out? When did you have this thing put in? Two, is it the wires? Are the wires broken? Have the wires been pulled out for some reason? Uh, Or are the wires over-sensing something? And then three, is it the heart? Is the heart the problem? Is it because this guy's got something else going on and I'm just seeing a manifestation of a bigger problem like sepsis, like acidosis, or like an MI? 
And you're going to catch a lot of things that way. And your EKG is going to help you out big time. Now, let's go ahead and just say this guy, when you got his chest x-ray, you actually saw that the wires had come out of his heart. And this guy had bad dementia, and his wife describes that he plays with his pacemaker. Scratching at the pacemaker. He scratches yeah. at his pacemaker, and he he, twid, he twiddles it around, if you would say. Okay, what I picture he, it. I see this. What does he have, Dylan? He's got the twiddler syndrome. Let me just guess. <laughs> the twiddler <laughs> syndrome is right. Okay. So twiddler syndrome is another thing. It's, it seems sometimes that people who like to play with their pacemakers, usually with a pacemaker that's just been put in, right. they'll actually basically play with this thing, they'll twist the pacemaker, and it pops the leads right out of their heart. So they wind it up. They wind it up. Yeah. You got it. You got it. So that's an interesting one. That you might pick that up once in a career or never in a career, but definitely a syndrome that's really, really interesting. That's nice. I like that. Now let's pretend that he did not have twiddler syndrome, but that the, the pacemaker was picking up his pill roller shaking from his Parkinson's. Yeah. Right? So I would have a clue probably, right? Because I'd look at, the, first I see the patient, he's shaking like uh, Parkinson's patient. Yep. Uh, and I'd probably have a clue too that the EKG, I'm going to guess, is so full of that artifact that it's hard to interpret. Uh-huh. Uh, and that might be my clue, right? That he's uh, oversensing. Yep, exactly. He is oversensing. Now, let me ask you, there's something you can do. If you figure out someone is oversensing, they're pricking, picking out inappropriate electrical activity and not pacing the heart, there's something you can do to make that patient feel better and start reperfusing in the next five minutes. What is that? Well, let me think. It's not putting in a new pacemaker. It's not finding a cure for Parkinson's disease. Uh, So I'm going to guess it's maybe a magnet? Magnets, exactly. So magnets, here's the simple way to think about magnets. A magnet makes the pacemaker or the defibrillator not sense what's going on with the heart. It turns off sensing. So if you pop a magnet on a pacemaker, what the pacemaker says is, okay, I'm just going to fire off at a predetermined rate between 60 and 100. And every pacemaker is a little different, but it basically just starts firing at that rate, asynchronous pacing at around 60 to 100 beats per minute. So if you figure out this guy is oversensing, he is maybe in shock because he's underperfusing because of bradycardia. You can pop a magnet on him. His heart's going to start going at a normal rate. You might make your patient really quick, really fast, or well, really fast by using a magnet. Do you know where the magnet is in our shop? I think it's in the Pixis. <laughs> really? I have no idea. Everyone should know where the magnet is. Yeah, yeah, I think it's true. Yep. I know we have one. Because, yeah, we do, we do, we yep, do have because one. Because yeah. it's appeared ma- miraculously. Miraculously. Mostly, yeah. mostly yeah. Our, our nurses who are in almost all things smarter than us basically miracle it to the bedside. And that's what I depend upon. Yeah, that must be it. That must be it. So let's talk about the opposite problem. Now you know how to approach someone with a pacemaker that's going too slow. Let's talk about another one, and we'll also introduce this as a case. Okay. Okay? And let's make this really interesting. Let's add a foreign flair to it, okay? You've got this guy, Rico Suave, we'll call him, okay? 70 years old, looks good, no medical problems except for a heart condition, has recently come up to the States from Mexico. This guy comes in because he's fainted, and he's complaining of terrible chest pain, 
He's diaphoretic. He looks like beaten dog crap when the medics get to him. And when they try to feel his pulse, they basically don't feel very much. They feel really thready, too fast to count pulse. Okay. When they throw the EKG wires on, it just looks like squiggles. Really quick, oscillating squiggles, right? Okay. So now he's being brought in. You get the call. You're the doc at the shop. And you're thinking, what the heck is going wrong with this pacemaker? Why is this guy in an arrhythmia? Right. Right. So let's go through our exercise again. All right. So I've got a guy. He's sick. And he has a very rapid uh, pulse. And I guess my first question would be, uh, have they shocked him? Did they try cardioverting him? Yep. yep. And we're going to get to that. But I want to use the algorithm we talked about. Oh, right. We're going okay. to we're gonna right. pontificate. The pacemaker, the heart, or I forget the other one. The wires? The wires. The wires. All right. So it's not going to be the wires. Right away, I, I'm just confident. It's not a wire problem. Uh-huh. Uh, it could be the heart if he has a native arrhythmia. And maybe his pacemaker just is not... Uh, it's, assuming it's maybe it's a pre-ICD function pacemaker. So maybe he just has a pacemaker, not an ICD. So maybe he's in VTAC. Or mm-hmm. maybe he's in some other rapid native you know arrhythmia that would be one possibility maybe he's ischemic or maybe he's got the cocaine or he's got something else on board uh but uh because this is a pacemaker talk i mean i guess that's not it uh and so my next thought would be well maybe this is uh a primary pacemaker problem and i guess my only the only thing i know how to do is to put a magnet on the patient. So I, I guess I'd put a magnet on the patient. Okay, that's always a good idea when it comes to pacemaker problems. But this is actually not the pace. This is not going to work for this type of pacemaker Don't. problem. Do I get to so, rip it out of his chest? Oh, we're getting to that, Dylan. Okay. Be patient, be patient. So going back through this, one, is it the pacemaker? Definitely could be, right? Sometimes when pacemaker batteries start dying, or when they start getting too old, they'll start malfunctioning. So there could be problems with the software. It could be malfunctioning because the battery's dying and this could be a swan song, right? So it could be that the pacemaker is inappropriately pacing the heart. The problem is with the pacemaker. The problem could also be with the wires, right? And the wires could be, instead of over-sensing, under-sensing. So the heart is beating and the pacemaker isn't picking up on the heart beating so it's giving you extra contractions. It's saying, hey, there's not a beat. We should probably pace the heart. But the heart is beating on its own. So that is called under-sensing. That leads to over-pacing. So let's run those two together. So under-sensing leads to over-pacing. The, heart, the pacemaker doesn't know the heart's going, so it keeps on firing inappropriately. Right. Gives you palpitations. It almost looks like AFib with papers, pa- pacer spikes. Okay? Right. And the final thing, and this is a really interesting one, is it's the heart. And we see this sometimes in pacemakers that pace both the atria and the ventricles. Is just like the heart can form native circuits in it that basically, you know, like AFib or like an SVT, you can actually have circuits form because of your pacemaker. So a reentrant circuit between the pacemaker leads. Yes, okay. exactly. <laughs> and that can occur between your pacemaker leads. And the, the interesting thing is if you suspect something like that, you should actually try vagal maneuvers. Mm-hmm. You can try adenosine. Hmm. You can try all the things that you use for pacemaker. Or you can also pop a magnet on that and turn it back to asynchronous. And sometimes that's going to break your cycle. Right. Okay. okay. So you can have a pacemaker-mediated tachycardia. And other times, keeping with it's the heart, 
is it's the pacemaker sensing an atrial arrhythmia and trying to make the ventricle keep up. Right. We see that all the time yep. with the someone in sinus tack yep. and the pacemaker. You're like, why is this so fast? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And, and so it could be that the pacemaker, and that's called a pseudoarrhythmia. Because the pacemaker is working well. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. He it's, just has a fever and his heart rate's 130. Exactly. Yeah. It's just following the lead of the atria. And that right. could be physiologic, like fever and tachycardia. Or it could be pathologic. This guy's gone into AFib and the pacemaker's trying to keep up with his AFib or his SVT. Right. Okay. But this guy's got something far more interesting. Right. I get the feeling. Yeah. 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 Far more interesting. This is something that's, that's rare. This is what's called runaway pacemaker. And what that is, runaway pacemaker, is a pacemaker that's malfunctioned and is giving electrical shocks to the heart as fast as possible. And this is a deadly condition. We see it with old pacemakers. So that's why this guy is from, you know, overseas. He may have had an old pacemaker put in, but it is a dramatic looking EKG. And when you call the cardiologist, what are they going to tell you to do? It's going to be a magnet. Initially. Initially. Yeah, sure. And, and it's not going to work. And the magnet's not going to work. And then you know what your next step is? I think you're going to tell us. Yeah. But I think it might be dramatic. It's very dramatic. Yeah. You cut the chest open in the area of the pacemaker. You look for the wires and you clip the wires like a bomb. So this, right. So this is the mixture of like a... Uh, a uh, action movie and and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that. You're ripping oh. the heart out. Oh yeah, you're ripping. You're you're. I mean, now tell me you've it. never done this. I have never done this, but I have added this to my medical fantasy list. Okay, my medical it's procedure right fantasy list. It is. It's up definitely there. up there. Oh yeah, it's I mean, definitely up there. Yeah, cut the wires to the pacemaker. I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say I'm gonna be very uncomfortable with that procedure. <laughs> I think that's a very difficult procedure and right. But it, but it could happen. I have, we do, we do talk about the runaway pacemaker phenomenon. Um, I would love to see it. I agree with you. It would be, it would be pretty cool. It would be pretty cool. So, but what about what you, so there's, I guess there's no, um, you, there's no drug. You can't put the heart, you can't giving the patient that's, for example, a beta blocker is probably kill them because they'll get, negative uh contractility and not a good thing so i guess you you really may be maybe uh have no choice you have no hopefully choice. you're in an urban area where the cardiologists are no more than 20 minutes away oh yeah for yeah. sure most interesting uh, most people yeah. with this die yes yeah. i would i would imagine yeah. doesn't make it to the hospital yep one thing i would say about that uh and I, I like your your sort of triage approach to the pacemaker problem but one mantra I always like to say to my students, medics, nurses, and repeat to myself when I'm nervous is that pacemakers are really friggin' smart. Yeah. And 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 often I look at it and I'm puzzled by I'm I'm teasing through apart the the EKG and my sort of I always I tend to start from the default of it's probably doing exactly what it's supposed to do. I just need to figure out what it's doing. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and and then of course be wary of uh, yeah. of the, those rare problems. Exactly, and and that's the that's the great thing is most of the time these pacemakers work awesome, and the technology has gotten so much more complex, and the algorithms in all of these pacemakers so much better at recognizing things like you know under sensing or over sensing. We don't see these that much, you know. Yeah, but when it's we rare. when we do see them. It's potentially high stakes, and we have to know how to think about them. But thank God they're so much better than they used to be. Like they say, the uh, smartest kid or the dumbest kidney is 
smarter than the average internist. <laughs> definitely started smarter than the average emergency physician. <laughs> Similar with the pacemakers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, most of the time when these things come in, we don't figure this out. You know what we do? We, we call the rep. We ask the pacemaker, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's wrong with yeah. you, yeah. right? We interrogate these things like they're Al-Qaeda terrorists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the uh, changes the whole syncope workup, right? You have the syncope patient who's got a pacemaker in, and, and uh, I feel like I, I think about a third of the patients we see have pacemakers at our yeah. shop, it seems like. It's and uh, yeah, I feel like once a month there's someone who I would normally admit and then I they have a pacemaker and I can just say, you know what, it was actually totally normal so you can go Yeah, home. exactly. Yeah. We interrogate these people, the rep comes in, they say, hey, this thing's working great. Here is the event that happened and we all feel comfortable that, hey, this thing did exactly what it was supposed to do and these people get their ticket out of the hospital, which is great. Yeah. Sweet. So let's, let's now talk about ICDs. First of all, do you know what the difference between an ICD and an AICD is? There is no difference. There is no difference, except that Boston Scientific patented the name AICD. Oh, my people. Oh, yes. Automated, yeah. automated implantable Got it. cardioverter defibrillator versus <laughs> implantable cardioverter defibrillator. So Boston Scientific is the AICD. Everyone else is an ICD. You got it. And okay. we usually just lump these things in with ICD. Another yeah. piece of... Basically, basically useless trivia is why are most of these pacemakers and defibrillators put in the left chest wall? Ooh, does it have to do with right-handed cardiologists? Oh, it has to do with right-handed patients. Oh. They actually put it in the opposite of your dominant hand. Right, hands. that makes good sense. So yeah. you're so you don't get the weird pinching feeling when you're exactly reaching forward with your right arm exactly nice. so like so that's that. how they decide yeah. which side they're going to put your pacemaker on like and that. a lot of these are now being put in the belly in the abdominal wall creepy you know yeah which is which is weird but uh but it just goes to show you you got to undress your patients you got to examine your yeah. patients to know what they got especially if they're not talking with you yeah okay. um so let's talk about defibrillators right okay. cardioverter defibrillators we only see these in two cases right one, it shocked me. Why did this thing shock me? Right. Or two, the person comes in coding because it didn't shock them. Right. Those are the two times that we see these defibrillators come in to us and we need to figure out what's going on with them. I would add a third, which is the patient's dead and their device is still doing something to them. Oh, that's true. Yeah. These, these people... These which are, is really a variation on number two. Yep. But... Yep. Yeah. But uh, uh, and then I guess we can also throw in wound infections after they're put in. But to tell you the truth, it's that's something that that you know is going to be pretty obvious. Yeah. So we're just talking about the defibrillator itself. So what's you? So the guy comes in. He got kicked in the chest. Uh, it went off once. What do you do? Okay. So this this is a great question. Now basically, it comes down to two things: did it shock him appropriately, or did it shock him inappropriately? And you can get some of that from the history. You can get some of that from interrogating the device, and you can get some of that through looking at seeing what the pacemaker is seeing. Right. So here's the thing. ICDs, we see them 20 times more often than pacemakers for problems. We see ICDs a lot more for problems than pacemakers in the emergency department, and it's usually because people got shocked. Mm -hmm. okay. Not so, necessarily a problem. Yep, not necessarily a problem, unless it's an inappropriate shock. Right. So that's really the question you're going to answer as an emergency doc. Was this something that, hey, this is inappropriate, this thing should not be shocking you, or, hey, this thing's saving your life, 
it should keep on shocking you and we should treat your underlying condition. Right. Whether it's ischemia or you're going through arrhythmias or your electrolytes are really screwy and you're going through episodes of Tersatz. Right. So that's the question that we are charged with answering. Now, some of it you can get through history because the most common reasons for shock is the heart senses tachycardia. And if someone's got a left bundle branch block and they decide they want to run their first marathon mm-hmm. and they're jogging and they mm-hmm. get shocked, right. you know what? Your, your pacemaker just shocked. It shocked your sinus tachycardia. Right. So that's a big hint. If it happens during times of exertion, it might be inappropriate. If it happens when people are just sitting down watching TV, you know, they're watching Game of Thrones and they get popped in the chest, that might be an appropriate shock. So some of that you can get from history. The other thing is when you get your EKG and you see what the heart is doing, if it's tachycardic because it's in AFib with RVR, then that might be questionably an appropriate shock because the, they're trying to get you out of that. If you're looking and it's because of sinus tach, if you're septic and it's defibrillating sinus tach, then that's an inappropriate shock. You should actually try to rescue that patient from being shocked for their sinus tachycardia. Right. And how are you going to do that? Well, I would probably... You would interrogate the pacemaker, and then you would have the rep uh, turn up the, you know, the upper threshold for its, uh, its, uh, its, its uh, discharge. Yep. Yeah. And I'm glad you yeah. you said that instead of put a magnet on it. Right. Um, because you can put a magnet on these pacemakers, but there's actually a certain subset of pacemakers that that's going to just turn the pacemaker off. Right. In most pacemakers, when you put a magnet on, it's going to basically turn off sensing for a short period of time. Right. But in some pacemakers, it actually, especially older ones, it actually turns your pa- that sorry turns that defibrillator off. Right. So if that person's having true arrhythmias and you turn that that pacemaker off, you right. better have some paddles. You have some there. options. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, no, I feel like we see that a lot. I feel like I see a lot of patients who come in and they they have had a discharge and and in fact what happened is. These guys have these devices for a reason. They often have a lot of arrhythmias. Uh, they may or may not be on a, any arrhythmic in addition to their device. And then this is somebody maybe who has frequent, you know, six-beat runs of VT, let's say. Mm-hmm. And the thing kicks in after seven beats, right? And then one day he had too much coffee or forgot to take his you know, is flecainide or amiodarone or something. And then he comes in because he's having eight beat runs of ET and he's getting shocked every 20 minutes. And all they need to do is just reset the device so that it tolerates 10 beats of ET or whatever, whatever it is. I don't think they count beats. It'd be time. But yeah, it does seem like there's just these endless nuances to how these things can be uh, programmed. Can can be programmed and different devices by different companies do it differently, which is part of the frustrating thing. There's not... There's not this, everyone does it the same. I mean, in some people, the magnet turns the thing off completely. Some people, it puts it quiet for a little while. Some, it resets the conditions, you know. Definitely, if there's a person who you've coded for a long time, who's gone and their defibrillator is still shocking them, you want to get the magnet out and turn that thing off so someone can basically die in peace. But oftentimes, with defibrillators, our big thing is, is it an appropriate shock? Is it an inappropriate shock? If it's inappropriate, involve the rep, involve the cardiologist early. If they say, hey, this is something that this guy's in sinus, sinus tech, our pacemaker is okay if you put a magnet on it to, to deactivate it for a while, you can go put a magnet on it. But I would not do so without talking with the rep or your cardiologist first.
Sounds good. It's a good review. Yeah. Well, thank you. Now Don and I are going to talk about hands-on defibrillation. Really, I don't think we disagree on this, but I've personally been shocked during cardioversion, so we try to make some sense of this. The question is, is hands-on defibrillation safe? Hands-on defibrillation. 200 joules of energy straight to the myocardium. Don't touch that patient. The electricity may take away your ability to think, to have emotion, or reproduce. It could make your future children stupid. But wait. What if electricity traveled through the path of least resistance? Would you not be safe? Is clearing for shock therefore stupid? Don and Dylan help me understand. I had a case of a guy who came in. Uh, he was in a fib. I went through the process of shared decision making and uh, obtained his his verbal and written consent for uh, cardioversion in the department. We set him up. We gave him the milk of amnesia. Hit him with 200 joules three times by phasic, and nothing changed. And I decided that uh, I was going to be cool and uh, put my hands on his chest and hold down on the pad. And uh, we resedated him. And I was leaning on this guy with both hands. I was wearing gloves. And I said, go, shock. And he said, you're, you're on the patient. And I said, I know, go, shock. And he shocked him and I felt it. It hurt. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Tell, what, what happened? What, what happened is you got... I thought this was safe. Yeah, I... And, and here's here. This is something that's controversial. And let's just name this topic. It's can you have your hands on the patient when you're shocking them? Hands on defibrillation. Hands on defibrillation or cardioversion. It's right? a thing. It is a thing. And I'll tell you what, when there's someone who's getting CPR, who we're trying to uh, who is basically coding, I will actually keep my hands on throughout the CPR process, even when they shock. You are the unburnt. You are Daenerys Targaryen emerging <laughs> from the fires. I, I have, I have, uh, I have had the pleasure of not being shocked while doing CPR, and I'm a big believer in the thought that there's only a few things that are going to make a difference for your coding patient, right? Good CPR and shocking. That's really it. Everything else is kind of you know, medical mumbo-jumbo. Right. Lidocaine and amiodarone. Amiodarone gets people to the ICU. They don't survive out of the hospital. In my, in my idea, amiodarone is the $200,000 mistake if you get someone back with amiodarone, right? Because it doesn't improve survival. Epinephrine doesn't improve survival. Two things improve survival in cardiac arrest. Good CPR and early defibrillation when it's a shockable rhythm. We agree on this. Yep. So let's talk about that, sh that good CPR. We know that good CPR, one of the hallmarks of it is you don't stop CPR. There's a thing called the compression fracture. How often you're pushing on their chest and getting forward perfusion. And anytime you take your hands off the chest, anytime you pause, that person's chance of survival goes down. Don't pause for intubation. Don't pause so someone can put a central line in. You're killing your patient. And in my book, don't pause to shock. Right? Yeah. Now, I think that th there's some evidence behind this, right? Yeah. This, isn't, this isn't just you. So, so, you know, and I know we come down a little bit differently, but there's two studies that I point to when I give people my rationale that I'm going to continue CPR while I'm shocking. The first one came out in 2008 by Dr. Lloyd and a bunch of other other smart people, it said hands-on defibrillation. 
an analysis of electrical current flow through rescuers in direct contact with patients during biphasic external defibrillation. And that came out in circulation in 2008. And this is really what kicked off this discussion. And it basically took 43 people who were arresting. It took rescuers who were doing CPR. And it shocked them at 200 joules biphasic during their CPR. And all 43 of those rescuers said, I didn't feel a thing. And they also did some other things. They grounded them. They had a grounding pad on the leg to the patient's chest, etc. And, uh, and basically it said this might be safe. This could be something that could save more people's lives. And I spoke with a few people who are better at electronics than I or electricity than I. And we know a few things about electricity. It likes the path of least resistance. If you've got an electrode on the left part of the chest, on the left side, and an electrode on the right upper, and you've got the heart in between, and you hit that shock button, it's unlikely that electricity is going to Go through take the, the long route. Exactly. Take the wrong route, the long route through you. I think I was wearing too much hair gel. <laughs> Maybe. And, and also, I was got, sweaty. You've got no insulation. You've got no fat on you. It's true. I was sweaty and I'm, and I'm poorly insulated. You're all, you're all sinew. You That's know? right. <laughs> but we call it gristle. <laughs> the other one, the other study was hands-on defibrillation has the potential to improve the quality of cardiopulmonary resuscitation and is safe for rescuers, a preclinical study. And this, and in this study... Preclinical worries me. Yeah, preclinical. But it's preclinical because they were working in the veterinary field. Got it. They took 20 pigs. They gave 20 pigs ventricular fibrillation. They had people do CPR. They were double nitrile gloved. Hmm. And they shocked all these pigs. And basically, the, the good part of this is 17 of the 20 pigs survived. There was no difference in survival when you looked at a p-value. But what it did show is also in that study that those, those people doing CPR on those pigs getting shocked didn't feel the current. They didn't feel being Same shocked. energy they do in the... Yeah, 200, 200, 200 biphasic. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Now, there's a few that kind of poke little holes in my, in my, my defibrillation party, if you will. And those are all studies that look at the gloves that we use and say these things are absolutely terrible for insulating you against a shock. Okay? And there's three different studies out there, but the one that's most often quoted is, uh, is a study that's done in 2014 in resuscitation by, I believe, Dr. Lemkin, and it's electrical exposure risk associated with hands-on defibrillation. And this actually is a cadaver study. They got eight cadavers. They, uh, they had people do CPR on these cadavers. They shocked these cadavers. And then they measured how much energy, how much voltage was transitioned to the, to the actual CPR performer. The performer. Yep. Okay. And, and what they found was it ranged from one to eight joules of energy. So, yeah, that's interesting. And we looked into this a little bit. I mean, I think that we actually are on the same page. I, I think that hands-on defibrillation makes sense, right? We don't want to interrupt our, our chest compressions. We want to maintain a high compression fraction. Uh, and we uh, probably are not going to get shocked. Um, my experience, I think, was probably an anomaly, and it related to my my body habitus notwithstanding, uh, probably something about the mechanics of leaning on this patient with both hands. And, uh, and then the other thing I think, and, and yeah, I think you're getting, you're making this point right now, but 
Uh, you know, eight joules doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, when we looked this up, uh, the, the the model of commotio cordis, the, the blow to the chest uh, as a potential um, mechanism for inducing arrhythmia, what did we come up? Was it five joules, three joules, yes. something like that? So if a, a precordial thump, a hit to or, the chest, okay. exactly, yeah. gives you between two and five joules of energy. And so that was my experience, that when I when I got shocked, it basically felt like someone just punched me in the chest. It wasn't the most painful thing I'd ever felt, but it was it got my attention. And that probably I and if this says that was eight joules, I would believe that. That sounds about right. And there's an urban myth out there is that someone didn't clear, they were touching the patient, they got defibrillated, the energy passed to them, and they had an R on T phenomenon mm. and immediately went into ventricular fibrillation. Could happen. And, and now this team is coding two people. Right, mm. one of them who was a medical provider. So that's why there's all this, this uh, you know, ritual around clearing. Right. I'm clear. You're clear. Everyone is clear. And here's what I've got to say. Here's how I practice. When there's someone who's dying and their life is on the line, and we're doing CPR on them, when we have that normal pause, I double glove and I jump on the chest, and I tell our providers to shock through that because I know the risk. I know the benefits. And I'm happy to go ahead and do that, especially if it's going to mean better patient survival. Do I believe that I should risk my team for that? I don't think so. Have I been doing this for basically dozens of patients? I have. I've been doing this since the end of my residency, and I have never once perceived a shock. And if you look online, Life in the Fast Lane has another guy who's an emergency doc who does the same thing, and he's never felt a shock. But then again... It might be why I've lost so many brain cells. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, no, I, this is a convincing argument. I, I think it's I think it's the right thing to do. I think that the the ethics of making your medical student do it, your your ED tech do it, maybe that's sketchy. But I think doing it yourself, I think it's a no brainer. Now, solo coverage, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. These are questions, yeah. but uh, I think I think we're on the, we're on the same page in this one. We would we would advocate that. Um, that uh, uninterrupted chest compressions, thumbs up, and hands-on defibrillation, also probably thumbs up. Yep. And if you're a provider who stops CPR so you can get an ET tube or get a stop central that. line. Stop that. Stop it. Stop that right now. Stop it right now. You're killing your patient. Yeah. Right? We, we agree. Yep. Okay. Cool. So hands-on defibrillation. It's a thing. Shocking. All right. So uh, I wanted to say a few words again on an EMS-friendly and nursing-friendly topic on uh, cardiology. Uh, wanted to touch base on the REVERT trial. When you have SVT, your heart feels as if it is traveling at the speed of light. You gain mass, your aging slows to a crawl, but you feel like dog shit. Fortunately, a simple Valsalva may fix you. Valsalva like a pro. Use the new method proposed by the REVERT trial. Don't Valsalva like an idiot. You will lose all your friends, and the only person who will love you is your mother. You must revert. So, God, I feel like we're an SVT center of excellence. I, I see a lot of SVT in my practice, and that may be true of everywhere. I just feel like in Colorado there's a lot. I think also, Dylan, when people see you, their hearts go pitter-patter, you know? Some of, some of it might be the company that they're keeping. Ah, shucks. In all my years of practice, such as they are, I have maybe had one success with the old Valsalva maneuver, but I just don't feel like it works. 
others have had great success, but I think we love the revert trial. Anything that's free uh, potentially avoids unnecessary emergency department visits uh, and is really patient friendly. Uh, adenosine, friggin' miserable. Mm-hmm. I hate it. Yep. Right? It's terrible. And maybe we just need to use Verapamil, but but uh, which I don't do. But maybe I should. It's a, a topic for another day. The one thing I love about adenosine is everyone's got their adenosine face, right? <laughs> <laughs> when you push adenosine, show so, me your adenosine face. <laughs> Yeah, but when you push adenosine, I want you to think about that next time you're looking at a patient. As when they feel that adenosine, there's an oh shit moment that flushes over their face Absolutely. and their mouth starts gaping Absolutely. and their eyes dilate and they think they're going to die. Absolutely. And that is what I have lovingly termed their adenosine face. It makes sense. And right? if, you, it's true. if you can save someone from the adenosine face by doing simple other maneuvers, a better vagal maneuver, why the heck wouldn't you do it? So let's first start by discussing old vagal maneuvers. The, the vagal maneuvers, and whether it's, you know, put your thumb in your mouth and blow on it, or whether it's bear down like you're trying to poop, or whether it's, you know, blow in a syringe, or, or what have you, um, these, are all, these are all options. Now, I would say I would add one uh, personal piece of information. SVT runs in my family. So, uh, when I was a kid, I had, uh, the, uh, Wolf Parkinson white abnormality on my EKG. Oh, wow. Uh, I never had an SVT that I am aware of. Um, my mom had, uh, had SVT and I had to have an, ultimately I had to have an ablation. Uh, and my brother, uh, has Wolf Parkinson white and ultimately had to have an ablation. Wow. And that's a whole nother story. But, um, uh, but, uh, SVT was something I grew up with, so I was taught how to do a vagal maneuver when I was a child, because my mom had to do them all the time, and my brother got them, and um, so I've all my life it's been a thing, uh, and so I feel like I have a little expertise on the vagal maneuver, but I would say with patients, I just it just never it never it did that it never worked for me. But I would say the data. What does the data say? I mean, the data says that the Valsalva works something like five to fifteen percent of yeah, the time. It's yeah. kind of what the data says. Exactly. Right around 15. Yeah. And what the revert trial was, was a, um, randomized, uh, parallel, uh, uh, patient study, multi-centered. I think it was 10 emergency departments in the UK. Uh, and the patients were, were randomized, obviously not blinded to either receive a standard vagal maneuver for their SVT versus the, uh, vagal maneuver with the addition of a passive leg raise. Mm-hmm. And there are some lovely, um, lovely videos on the interwebs. Uh, the Lancet is uh, where it was published, and that the Lancet site has the video, but it's also on multiple sites. I think um, nice one I want to say on uh, Rebel EM has a nice one. There's a couple of other ones that are very good. And we will post a link to this video in our videos section. So you don't have to imagine it. We're going to describe it to you. But it's really, just go watch the video. It's yeah, going to take you beautiful. two minutes. You're going to know how to, quote unquote, revert vagal someone. And you're going to have a lot better success. You know what my favorite thing about the video was? The awesome bright red scrubs that that, <laughs> that uh, UK emergency visit, he's like the lead oh, author, yeah. is in there. And, and, and uh, he, he has this awesome like crimson red scrubs. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely sticks out. Yeah. So, so th- let me just describe to you what this revert looks like. You're going to have the patient sit up. What they do is they give them a 10cc syringe and they have the patient take a deep breath as possible, 
he blows out of the syringe. So he blows that full syringe out. And then afterwards, they take... 15 seconds. 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Afterwards, they lay down his bed. He lays down with it. They pick up his legs. And then they give him a few, you know, 15 seconds or so of that. And he cardioverts. And that's the revert. That's the, that's the, the new step they've added is actually having the patient go from basically sitting and, and blowing out and then laying him down and putting his legs up. It's a simple, simple maneuver. Yeah, it's straightforward. And in the video, it's three, two nurses and a doc, but really it could be a single provider. Mm-hmm. You, you have him sit up, you blow in for 15 minutes, you coach him, you quickly lay him supine, you, li- you grab the ankles, you lift the legs up 45 degree angle, and you wait. I don't, know, I don't think it says how long you have to wait, but it's yeah, not long. But it's I, 30 seconds. I love it too because it makes sense physiologically. So what you're trying to do with all these vagal maneuvers is you're trying to increase your intrathoracic pressure. Your, left, your right atria is going to get smaller. And then you want this really big flow of blood into that atria. So that atria expands and it sets off the vagal reflex. The vagal reflex that's going to slow your heart down. And what they do with this is by both adding that intrathoracic pressure, you're, you're blowing out something or you're, or you're valsalving, and that intrathoracic pressure decreases the size of the right atria, decreases, you know, venous return to your heart. And then by laying you down and popping your legs up, suddenly, whoosh, you get this huge flow of blood into your right atria. You're so much more likely to get a vagal response with that and break your SVT. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and so basically what they found was, um, I think 17% conversion rate in the control group, which is about typical, versus a 43% conversion rate in the um, in the intervention. So it works, and it gives you an absolute increased rate of 26% with a number needed to treat of three. Yeah, it's it's more than twice as good. Yeah, yeah, it's excellent. And and again, and also to remember, it's a number needed to harm of of uh, of infinite. Right, so there, this is a very benign intervention, and I think you could say with adenosine, the number needed to harm is one. I mean, it's just it's awful. People hate it. Makes you feel like crap. Yeah, makes you feel like crap. Give gives you the adenosine face. So we are bullish on the revert trial. Try it with your next patient with SVT. Stamp of approval. This is one thing that's going to change your practice as soon as you put it in. Now we are going to discuss drugs and cardiogenic shock with our colleague, Rachel Duncan, ED pharmacist extraordinaire. Included in this section is an overview of vasopressors and inotropes, as well as a discussion of decision-making around the role of early intubation, or not, and a little debate about end-of-life discussions in the critically ill patient. Don plays a little call-and-response word association game with vasopressor medication selection, and we include a refresher for emergency clinicians on milrinone, which most of us use rarely, if ever. Iotropes make your heart squeeze, but why do these drugs increase the gravitational pull between these two divided ventricles? Once apart, they come together. Rachel, use your pharmacologist skills to tell me how to make a weak heart squeeze. Squeeze your weak heart. Squeeze. Okay, Dylan, we've got the opportunity to add some actual class and intelligence to this podcast. For those of you who don't know Rachel Duncan, she is our clinical ED pharmacist extraordinaire. Rachel is going to enlighten us on what are ionotropes, and we're going to talk about cardiac drugs. 
All right, thanks for that amazing introduction, guys. We are going to talk about inotropes today, but to do that, I feel like we need to talk a little bit about cardiogenic shock. It's not a type of shock that we see that often in the ER, but when we do, it's something that we need to act very quickly and get that patient stabilized so that they can go for intervention. So I think we're all a little bit more familiar with hypovolemic shock. Um, so someone with blood loss from a trauma um, or obstructive shock would be another example of shock, as well as distributive shock, which is the most common example would be sepsis. So when we think of a hypovolemic shock from trauma, you might have a decreased cardiac output, an increased systemic vascular resistance, decreased CVP, and increased heart rate. Distributive shock looks slightly different in that if you can mount a cardiac response, typically the cardiac output is greatly increased. Systemic vascular resist resistance is non-existent. Um, decreased CVP, we're pounding them with fluids and an increased heart rate. Cardiogenic shock looks incredibly different. You basically flip the tables um, and have still the increased heart rate, but their systemic vascular resistance is very increased um, to a point that they're trying to compensate to increase their cardiac output because it is so low. So typically these patients present after a major MI. It would be the most common cause or patients that have a very low EF um, and fall off the Sterling curve. And so this would be the patients that are presenting very cold and wet, wet rather than warm and dry. And so they have a very increased CVP, very volume overloaded. Because of that, they fall off the curve and have a low cardiac output. So the definition of cardiogenic shock is decreased cardiac output and evidence of tissue hypoxia in the presence of adequate intravascular volume. And so the leading cause of death in acute MI is cardiogenic shock. And if you don't treat it very quickly, mortality approaches somewhere between 70 and 90 percent. Um, so signs and symptoms, definitely going to be hypotensive. They are not going to be hypovolemic, so that's one way that you can differentiate it from other types of shock. They have very poor tissue perfusion, so cool extremities. Like we said, they look like crap. Peripheral pulses will be very faint. Um, you can do some clinical bedside tests, so looking at their JVD. They'll have crackles in their lung and um, be very tachycardiac. Um, types of labs that you want to get are going to be your BMP, CBC, looking at your cardiac enzymes, of course, a blood gas, a lactate, and then a BMP can also help um, categorize these patients into a more cardiogenic issue. You'd also want to get a chest x-ray. You can do a bedside echo if you have someone that is familiar with doing that in the ER, as well as an EKG. So when we start looking at management of cardiogenic shock compared to something like distributive shock or sepsis, um, the first thing you think about is fluid management, and this is significantly different. Rather than pounding these patients with 20 to 30 cc's per kilo of fluid, putting in two or three liters in the first hour, we're talking about incredibly small boluses of fluid. As like we said, when you look at that Sterling curve, these patients are sitting right on it in between having just enough volume to make sure that they're um, optimizing their cardiac output and going over the edge where they are no longer able to have that cardiac output. Um, so you can can we give small fluid boluses? We're, we're talking 250, maybe 500. Um, if you do think that that, um, that fluids is part of their management, so you can correct their hypotension in that way. You know, I, I think just like practically, there's essentially no patient we don't do that with. Yeah. You know, everybody gets a fluid challenge. And some people, it's a tiny fluid challenge. Um, I have to say, I mean, there's a lot of buzz and talk about the use of ultrasound uh, as an assessment for fluid responsiveness, uh, doing a bedside IVC mm -hmm. ultrasound. We all 
train it, train to do it. Uh, I don't know, Don, what's your take? Are you a, are you a proponent of the IVC ultrasound? Well, yeah, I think when you, when you have shock, uh, you have to figure out what the source is, which is what Rachel's alluding to, is are they hot or are they cold shock? When I walk in the room and I touch the patient, do they feel cold, do they feel hot? Uh, to what their, what's their heart doing? And that's the best way to look at it. You pop an ultrasound on their heart and you look at their squeeze. If their heart looks like it's squeezing like crap, then I think, hey, this looks like a cardiogenic shock, especially if they came in with chest pain, they've got a cardiac history, et cetera. If their ventricles are kissing every time they're pumping, if you look and they've got great looking ventricular activity, then this is a distributive shock. This is not cardiogenic. I'm not going to start that person on ionotropes. So really, it changes your management completely when you figure out what type of shock it is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, that ultrasound, it's the essential first tool. You know, I'm looking, as you said, is there, are they tacky? Are they brady? Are they squeezing well? Are they squeezing poorly? I look at the, the RV. You know, I've had at least one patient where you look, you, you look at them, they're sweaty, they're diaphoretic, their neck veins are, you know, up to their ears. And their RV's enormous and barely moving, you know, and that's somebody with a, with a PE. And, and it's, you look at the IVC, is it full, is it collapsing yeah. with their respiratory cycle? I think it's yeah. a huge part of what and we plus, do. And plus, are they a dialysis patient? Do they have a big-ass pericardial effusion that you're going to have to drain? So, I mean, the IVC, the, the ultrasound is the one-stop shop for looking at your pipes and looking at your pump. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, since we don't float swans these days, and especially not in the ER, I think bedside ultrasound is probably um, the most um, significant diagnostic tool when it comes to these types of patients. Um, so like we just talked about fluids, very, very careful fluid resuscitation in these patients, if any. Um, definitely doing a small challenge, um, like Dylan said. But the second part would be pharmacologic therapy, and that's when we're really starting to use agents to increase blood pressure and increase cardiac output. Um, you can tell Rachel's getting excited. It's getting into the pharmacology portion. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your drugs, drugs when the left. <laughs> Yes, we, we will talk about drugs next. The other things that we're doing are correcting electrolytes and acid base, and then um, early and definitive restoration of coronary blood flow is really what we're trying to get these patients to. So they need to either go to PCI or have an emergent cabbage. They need to go to the cath lab. Um, so first things first, central line placement, um, art line if we can do that in the ER just so we can get continuous blood pressure management. If you tell me cardiogenic shock, I tell you cath lab. Yeah, It's basically... Right. Uh, a, a reflex. They need to go to the cath lab, either open a vessel or put a pump in. Because if you just leave these people on vasopressors and ionotropes, uh, they're just going to slowly dwindle on you if the heart's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think these are all temporizing measures. Now we could have a whole other conversation about what to do for patients um, when this is their destination therapy, um, but that would be a totally different discussion. Um, so these patients are, of course, going to get aspirin and heparin. Um, you can consider diuretics if you think that their blood pressure can handle it. Um, again, that's only going to help symptomatically. Um, and then we get into our inotropes and vasopressors to get their MAP above 60 to 65. Um, so let's go through vasopressors first, just because I think that's what everyone, especially nursing staff, are more familiar with. So our most pure vasopressor that I think of is phenylephrine. It doesn't have any direct effect on the heart, only hits alpha receptors, which are located in your vasculature. That's going to increase your systemic vascular resistance, can have uh, different effects on your cardiac output depending on the patient. So if you're thinking about this type of a patient, they already have a systemic vascular resistance that is through the roof. And so they do not tend to 
need just a pure alpha agonist. So you can probably take that one out of your wheelhouse when it comes to cardiogenic shock. Um, next one that we can think about using if we need to augment the blood pressure when we start a true inotrope would be norepinephrine. So that um, has more alpha than beta. It does have some beta effects, so it will affect the heart. But for the most part, you're causing squeeze in the vasculature to increase the MAP. And so that may be something that we end up adding if their pressure drops when we start an inotrope. Um, the next one that I would consider would be epi, which is where you start having a balancing out of your beta and alpha effect. At very, very low doses, you may, ha you may be able to isolate a little bit of that beta effect. Once you start getting above 0.2 or 0.3 mics per kilo, you're definitely going to start seeing mostly alpha effects. So there is also some concern using epi in these patients um, due to increased myocardial oxygen consumption and an increased lactate in some patients. Um, so we don't tend to see that used a lot unless you're talking to a cardiologist that has a very specific purpose in mind. Um, the first sort of crossover drug that I think of between vasopressors and inotropes would be dopamine. And so dopamine at very, very low doses hits your dopamine receptors in your kidneys and is going to cause vasodilation. You know, I think we've all put to rest the whole you know, renal dosing of dopamine and know that that has no actual mortality benefit, but at very low doses, so from zero to maybe five mics per kilo per minute, you're going to just be hitting the dopamine receptors. Um, between 5 and 10 mics per kilo per minute, that's when you're going to start seeing the beta effects. And so beta 1 in your heart, you're going to see an increase in their heart rate as well as possibly an increased cardiac output. Um, once you start getting above 10, you really start to see the presser effects of dopamine. So that's when it starts becoming less selective and we start hitting the alpha receptors in the vasculature. So dopamine can be good for a patient that presents in cardiogenic shock that is also very hypotensive. That may be your drug of choice for those types of patients. However, you do have to be careful because dopamine in many trials has been associated with tachyarrhythmias. And so we know that in shock in general, when you're comparing levofed and dopamine, that the really drug of choice is norepi. But when you start looking at more specific types of shock, dopamine may have a place in therapy. Um, it can also cause increase in myocardial oxygen demand. Um, However, like I said, I think the true niche of this are those patients that are truly hypotensive, that you do not want to give them dobutamine or milrinone, which we'll talk about next, because of the vasodilation and drop in blood pressure that you can see that patient cannot tolerate a trial of those agents. Um, so the last two agents that we're actually here to talk about today are true inotropes, and the first is dobutamine. I think that's the one that most clinicians are the most familiar with and that we tend to use in the ER because it is so short-acting. It's fast on, fast off, half-life of minutes. Um, it acts directly on our adrenergic receptors, so mostly beta-1, some beta-2. Um, so when you think about that, it's going to cause increased contractility, possibly an increase in heart rate. And then when you think of where beta-2 is located in your vasculature, um, it's actually going to cause a vasodilation. So you can see a drop in blood pressure for these patients. And so if their SBP is less than 80, we typically are a little bit leery to start this because they may not be able to tolerate that drop in pressure. Um, it has less effect on the oxygen demand within the heart when compared to dopamine. Um, and it can cause tachycardia because it is directly hitting the beta receptors. So if patient becomes too tachycardic into the 150s and 160s, that's not a productive heart rate for most patients to be have enough time to fill their heart. Um, 
But like I said, this is a very short-acting medication, so it's easily titratable. We're starting at doses of 2.5 to 5 mics per kilo per minute and can get it up to 20 pretty quickly, titrating every five minutes based on um, their cardiac output as well as their blood pressure that you have to be watching. Now, let's say their blood pressure does drop, you can start to use your vasopressors. That might be where levofed comes into effect there. They really need an inotrope. They need to be able to tolerate this. This is what's gonna get them to the cath lab to have their intervention. It is completely reasonable to add a vasopressor to that. I'm not sure if you guys wanna chime in here how you feel about that in your practice. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been fortunate most of my clinical practice to be in a you know, a big center where we ha we have cath lab readily available to us. And I think mm -hmm. the folks who feel the most pain with this are folks who are remote from a cath lab, whether out of the facility or their facility is, you know, takes a while to ramp up. Um, so we rarely find ourselves in the situation where we have to do a lot of inotropy. Um, we do use vasopressors because we will have those patients who are just presenting malperfused and mm -hmm. hypotensive and where dopamine feels like it's risky, and we don't, so we don't do it very often. I can't think of the last time I used dopamine, and I maybe should be using it more. Um, it's been a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think we use it most in our sepsis algorithm, right? Yeah. We start pressure number one, we take a look at the heart, it's not squeezing well, because sepsis is actually a mixed cardiogenic distributive shock once right. you get to severe sepsis. Um, but, I mean, I remember the last time, I've used mildrenone, yeah. uh, so... Uh, with norepi milrinone within the last uh, within the last six months on a cardiogenic shock. That's cool. Um, so so I've I've been down through this algorithm, and I sure as heck wish that you were there. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I, I think that's right. I, I think it, that's right. That's a once in a not a you know less than once a year probably for me with amrinone milrinone. Norepi is my drug. I have to say, yeah. like, I, partly because I can only remember one or two things, but I, but I, but I, <laughs> but I, but I, I my drug. I, but partly because when I trained, it was always dopamine, and everybody had a friggin' heart rate of one forty. Yeah, and, 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 I can't. You know, I can't. It's, it's I, a mess. I like I like norepi. I think partly, mostly because of I just don't. You don't see as much tachycardia. Yeah. yeah. And these guys are arrhythmic prone. What is that? The, what's the word I want to say? They're that they, yeah they're they're prone to arrhythmias and so absolutely that's I think our biggest we have enough concern. literature in the past ten years to fully support using levofed over dopamine as well yeah. and so for I think the old um, saying of levofed leave them dead is completely should be dropped um, yeah. and for the most part I don't think it's ever wrong to start with levofed the the um, other thing that uh, this is a little bit not off topic but I but it's but it's it's a little bit off topic of the vasopressor specifically is um, I go to early intubation like when these patients are unstable yeah I, I just take the airway sedate them mm -hmm. and c cross that off because I often find we have to uh, I hate to say it but there's is too many things to think about mm -hmm. you know and if you're you're worried about their blood pressure you're worried about their oxygenation you're worried about their breathing you're worried about their stability. Um, for me, it's sort of early intubation, mm. um, get their oxygenation st stabilized, make sure the patient's appropriately, you know, uh, sedated and has analgesia. But yeah. then I, I sort of cross that one off the list. Uh, so, so I'll put that up. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you on that one. Yeah, because uh, yeah, because mm -hmm. I think uh, intubation changes their physiolo physiology dramatically. Increased pressure in their chest. Yep. Do you, you worry about that? Yep. Intra increased okay. intrathoracic pressure, decreased output. So here's here's my here's my methodology. 
uh, you got to swell to get well, uh-huh. and you got to dry to stay alive, right? So if you come in and you're in shock, I'm going to hammer you with fluids. If you're cardiogenic, I'm still going to trial fluids, and then I'm going to put you on pressors really early. Yep. If you start developing pulmonary edema because you've got ARDS and you're septic, or because you're cardiogenic and, hell, your, your lungs are fill, filling with uh, fluid because of that cardiogenic shock, I have 100% with you. I'm going to intubate them. I'm going to give them that positive pressure because that positive pressure is going to keep them alive. It's going to help push that fluid out of their lungs. Exactly. And plus, you're, you don't want them breathing at 30 times a minute. Exactly. Because yeah. at that point, they've tipped the physiologic scale yeah. where the amount of energy that they're expending to move their diaphragm 30 to 40 times a minute actually worsens their shock state. That's sure. too much energy for them to expend. You need to give that diaphragm a rest. You need to give the, you need to basically help perfuse them and intubating them is the right thing to do. Um, and you're right, it's totally a gray zone. When, yeah. when do we get there? Yeah, uh, I, I just think if, you're, if, the, if it's an awake patient who's talking to me and their blood pressure is 90 and the cath lab's on the way, that's not the patient we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that patient just needs to go to the cath lab. And frankly, a blood pressure of 90 is probably decent. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I want to screw with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure I want the extra afterload, you know, yeah. to your point. I'm not sure I want the extra arrhythmogenicity. I just want the patient to go to the cath lab. But if this is the, this is the one we talked about, the cold, you know, mm-hmm. clammy, fluid overloaded, you know, gray guy, this guy's getting innovated yeah. immediately. Yeah, for sure. It would cross it off the list, maximize their oxygenation, decrease their work of breathing, sedate them. And then I'm going to see kind of what their ultrasound shows me, mm. how's their squeeze, how's their IVC, make sure they don't have an effusion. They don't. I've identified a STEMI or not, ruled out a PE or, you know, made it yeah. less or likely or not. And then I'm teasing the, I'm probably giving them fluid. You know, at least, like you said, those aliquots of 250 cc mm-hmm. boluses what are they doing you know there's some literature about the back to our revert trial discussion you know there's mm-hmm. some literature about simply a passive leg raise you know and mm-hmm. a, a observing their okay. ivc responsiveness and their blood pressure response to that what is it 250 yeah. bolus right mm-hmm. is it a passive leg raise something like that yeah. so so let me let me say the last yeah. thing where i kind of really pause in intubating people is if i think they're really sick and they might die mm. right because that's, that's a thing where it's a lot harder to have an end-of-life conversation and what you want with an ET tube down their throat than it is to talk with them. Even if they're sick as stink and you're talking with them about the fact they might be in the ICU and they might have a better chance of dying than not. And, uh, and maybe it's a little bit of organ in me where I practiced before, but a lot of people in Oregon and, uh, have thought about how they want to die and they know they don't want to die in an ICU. And if I told them, I think there's a better chance that you're going to die in an ICU than you're going to walk out of this hospital, I was amazed by the number of patients that were in shock and I didn't intubate and I tried to resuscitate. And sometimes they died in my ER, sometimes they died on the floor, but they knew they didn't want a breathing tube in. So that's one of the things where we talked about before, we need to have a shift in medicine as our population gets older as people start thinking about how they want to pass away, is giving that information to patients early. And if they tell me, Doc, I really want to see my granddaughter's third birthday, I want to do everything, uh, and do everything's a terrible term, but I really want you to try hard to get me to that, then I'm going to intubate them, I'm going to do that. If they say, you know, Doc, I've had a good life, but my wife passed away, I'm all alone, and I really don't know if I really would want to go through that month-long recovery from coming back from a terrible shock, then I'm going to 
try to align myself with that patient's values. I'm not going to intubate them. I'm going to let them set the topic. So, you know, I think sometimes we get so focused in on the pathophysiology of what's going on with the patient that we forget to ask what the patient wants. So I think that's a big thing. That's number one on my checklist. If you look like you're going to die, one of the things I want to talk with you about is how you want to die. And if I'm going to ruin your death by putting a tube down your throat, then I don't want to do that. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I would say I think the ER, I mean, and, I'm, and let me frame this by saying I'm a huge advocate of the end-of-life discussion, and I try to be sort of as aggressive as I can about the kind of maximal palliative care in, the, in that patient. But I just think a lot of the patients we see we see them at that vulnerable moment where it's sort of too late to have the discussion just because their physiology, I don't think they're oxygenating. I think their brain's not working. So if I have an, if I, if the family's there saying, wait a second, wait a second, he would never want this, or there's some suggestion of that. Absolutely. I I slow it down and try Mm -hmm. to buy time, but I just, there's a lot of those patients where I just, I, I just don't know. I'm going to, and oftentimes I probably do, you know, err on that side of, of, uh, of putting them on the blower. And then with the trust in my critical care colleagues that they'll appropriately wean and, you know, and withdraw support if it's not the yeah. patient's d- desires. But yeah, it's a very important point. So I'm, I'm going to play a word association and I want you guys to tell me what presser or ionotrope you'd put them on. Okay? Okay. Young guy jumps into a swimming pool Cracks his neck, clear cut, neurogenic shock. Rachel? Depends on his heart rate, but I'm going to go with levofed. I know everyone loves phenylephrine for stuff like that, but a lot of times they lose the ability to auto regulate their heart rate, so I go with levofed. Interesting. Dylan? Fluids and then phenylephrine, maybe levofed. I think it's a reasonable. Okay. It sort of depends on the heart rate. Okay. Yeah, fluids and phenylephrine. Okay, great. Phenylephrine. Here's a hard one, okay? Uh, <laughs> guy comes in, short of breath, big swollen leg, recent knee surgery. Big PE, okay? Big PE, hypotensive, looks like crap. And you're going to say, okay, no duh. You're going to give him lytics. Uh-huh. He remains hypotensive. What do you do? I intubate him. You intubate him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, these guys You have... find out that he's a DNR. Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't oh, intubate him. So. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That's a tough, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I would, I would epi or leave a fed. Epi or leave a fed. Okay. Yeah. Same. Epi or leave a fed. But that's the good one. This, this is a little plug. It's like one of my favorite little topics but but these guys often have their 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 rare patient population two things are different about them one their hemodynamics improve with innovation unlike almost everybody else yeah. mm. and the reason is that these guys have this paradoxical ventricular septal deviation because of their dilated right ventricle so they as you give them fluids they're they actually often get worse because you increase their rv strain and stretch and increase this paradoxical Septal shift, you know, sort of squeezing the left ventricle, and the and the opposite physiology occurs with positive pressure ventilation. So these guys really need to be innovated, um, and then they often need pressors. Wow, you just blew my my knowledge center right there. That's, yeah, that's is, new. I had never heard that. So yeah, yeah, that's these awesome. guys are the one rare patient population that hemodynamics typically improve with innovation. Okay, well, mm-hmm. okay, septic shock, our bread and butter, sepsis, first presser. Leave a fed. Leave a fed. Good old leave a fed. 100% leave a fed. Yeah. Maybe maybe vasopressin, but yeah, as a chaser. Okay. Vasopressin chaser. And your third one now would be, depending on the patient, but probably epi. Yeah, Cardiogenic shock. 
again, remind us, what would you start first? Depends on their pressure. Yeah. So you got to do a small fluid challenge. If it's, right, I'm giving them a, a little fluid. If we if we can't say fluids, then I would say above 80, they get maybe dilbutamine, maybe. Mm -hmm. I'd be calling my pharmacist and to advise me. And I'd be having me. levofed hanging just in case maybe yeah. to add it. But it's probably levofed just because that's okay. all I know. So start, start with levofed. <laughs> levofed, go on, still hypotensive. Next, you'd add... It probably dopamine. depend on their heart rate and, yeah. squ and, and, and squeeze, but mm -hmm. yeah, dopamine or epi. Dopamine or epi. Your yeah, point was milrinone. I mean, I think that you could argue. We haven't talked about milrinone yet. Yeah. we got to talk about it. Why don't you tell us about milrinone? Yeah. Why are you holding back, Rachel? Yeah. So we have all these pressors and inotropes that directly hit adrenergic receptors, but then we have our phosphodiesterase inhibitors, which for us is pretty much going to be the use of milrinone. And so this basically blocks phosphodiesterase, which is what breaks down cyclic AMP, which is what increases calcium contractility and everything in the heart. So kind of on the back end, we are stopping the breakdown um, of cyclic AMP and increasing contractility. Um, so very unique mechanism of action. Big difference between milrinone and dobutamine is a half-life, very long half-life hours and up to days if they have any type of renal dysfunction. Um, so. Uh, when you give milrinone to patients, um, we typically start with a loading dose if their blood pressure can tolerate it. Now, I'm not sure in the ER that we would do many loading doses because typically I think their pressure is more borderline if they're in true cardiogenic shock, but a loading dose of 50 mics per kilo, give that over 10, 15 minutes depending on how their pressure is, and then we're starting at 0.375 to 0.75 mics per kilo per minute. And so milrinone is really going to increase the contractility of the heart, probably not have as much effect on the heart rate as something like dobutamine would, um, and actually cause a vasodilation, which is going to decrease your SVR and hopefully increase your cardiac output. Um, it also causes some vasodilation in the vasculature of the lungs, um, so it causes a decrease in both preload and afterload, which is beneficial for these patients. Um, so if that helps any of our decisions of our um, scenarios there, milrinone tends to be something that I don't see used in the ER a whole lot, although you said, Don, that you've used it in the past six months, definitely used in the ICU quite a bit, especially cardiac ICUs, and then also as long-term therapy for patients to just need inotropic therapy at home. So, and this is what I've always been taught, true cardiogenic shock. The heart's not squeezing. That's the, that's the culprit. Yep. Uh, Known's to me, one of the first ones we, we go to because it decreases that SVI. That weak heart doesn't have to work as hard, mm -hmm. and it increases your contractility. It's to, you know, it sounds at least physiologically like better tasting, less filling. Sounds delicious. Know? It does. Yeah. It sounds great, you know? Unless your blood pressure can't handle it because once you give that milrinone, it's not going anywhere yeah, but for that, hours. That's why you often have to set another another yes. another presser. Yes. So, so to me, it's you can start with norepi. If they're not responding to norepi, I'll often start them on milrinone. Okay. That's kind of my algorithm. Do you uh, bolus or not? So do I bolus or not? I... I'm trying to think of last time we bolus the patient. We actually had, I remember we actually had to have someone from the uh, cardiac ICU come down to help us with it. So we actually got some ICU help with that. Um, but I, I would think that a bolus, if you're really trying to load someone and get, and get the best effects, would be, would be optimal. Unless my smarter-than-me pharmacologist told me that was a dumb idea. Yeah. Not a dumb idea, just if their systolic is, you know, 70, it's probably not going to be a good immediate outcome.
Rachel, thank you so much yeah, for uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for for educating us on the ionotropes. Thanks for tolerating my nerdiness when it comes down to mechanism of action and receptor stuff. I appreciate it. You're, You're always welcome. <laughs> we have finally made it to the bottom of the countdown. I am so excited. Can't you tell that Rachel is great? But my superior intellect tells me you two miscounted half of five. So Dylan, tell us about the top four podcasts. All right, we're back to finish off second half of the top ten, part deux. This is back to you, Don, with the uh, marijuana podcast. I can't imagine the relevancy of marijuana to Colorado. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. The cool thing about this was uh, when I was researching this, I found out there's a really big difference between cyclic vomiting and uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So oftentimes we conflate the two. It's basically two sides of a coin. And actually, when you, uh, when you look at it, they're very different disease entities, although we treat them pretty much the same. I was in residency from 99 to 03. Neither of these things existed. I don't think I ever saw somebody with, with, uh, with either of these conditions. And now I don't have a shift where I don't have at least one of them. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm pretty sure it's caused by the Zika virus. That's my, that's my working hypothesis. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I'm just disappointed. I thought this would be number one. I <laughs> fell short. And then I listen to the rest of the podcast. And coming in at number three, I find out why I'm not number one. Because other people talk about cool shit like snakes. Greg Bertram talks about snakes. And he starts it out not only by talking about snakes, but he throws out a J. Scott Fitzgerald quote. I mean, how could I compete with that? He's classy. He talks about the first of May in the description of a woman. I mean, what a Renaissance man this Greg Bertram is. He is a he is a Renaissance man. Yeah, he's a lover. And then he talks about snakes biting you, and then neurotoxins and coagulopathy. This podcast is everything. You should listen to it. The next one is uh, coming in at number. Where are we? Number two. Number two. Number two is particularly, I think, relevant for our EMS colleagues. This is a really beautiful discussion by talented Rachel Duncan, who is an emergency department clinical pharmacologist, and she's going to go through the pharmacology of the cyanokit. So have you given cyanokit? Have you ever given it? No, I've seen it. You know, it wasn't my patient in residency where I was hung on a burn patient, but I have never, never ordered it or given it personally. Yeah, me neither. I, I'm still waiting. And I, I don't know, we're a, we're a burn center. Uh, I feel like we're, we see these people, but it just, uh, I've discussed it, thought about it, have yet to pull the trigger. Yeah, they have to be sick, sick as stink to get this stuff. I mean, cyanide poisoning is, uh, is definitely, definitely a deadly condition, along with carbon monoxide. So I'm just glad we have someone with Rachel who tells us when it's appropriate to pull the trigger and orders the drugs for us. Okay, we're there, folks. Number one. Of 100 podcasts, our number one podcaster is Dr. David Rosenberg, the skilled, the talented, the magnificent. And he talks about diphtheria. Diphtheria, dogs, and March the 18th. This one really runs the full spectrum. It's got him basically on the phone with the CDC. It's got this interesting patient. And it connects it to this historic journey of Balto the dog delivering diphtheria antitoxin. I mean, during this podcast, I listened, I laughed, I cried. Way to go, Dave. 
who plays Dr. Rosenberg? Who plays Dave in the film? Is it George Clooney? I think it is. You know, and Dave is better looking than George Clooney, so I thought it was really just a terrible, terrible undersell. Yeah, this one's awesome. I learned so much. I love the concept of real croup. I'm going to use that in my clinical practice. It's excellent. I learned a lot. And I love dogs. So uh, it's just, it's pretty much, it pretty much has everything. Yeah, it does. And for all those listeners out there, remember, Podcast 101 is all these top 10, the best 10 of the 100 first podcasts of the Medical Minute, all spliced together. So you don't have to go looking for these. You don't have to go searching everywhere across the internet. You can listen to this podcast and then click on the next one to hear our top 10 from the first 100. While the universe is ever expanding, our podcast is coming to an end. Do not cry. You are better than that. Instead, let Don serenade you with sweet goodbyes and tantalize you with our next show. Perhaps it will be the show to end all other shows. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your pets to listen to the emergencymedicalminute.com. Holy cow, that was a jam-packed two-plus hours of medical podcasting. But there's a whole team behind me and Dylan that makes this product come together. The Medical Minute wants to thank all the emergency physicians and ED pharmacists who take their time to create these Medical Minutes for our listeners. We also want to thank the tremendous team we have that backs up me and Dylan. Uh, All our editors, Jack and uh, Joe, uh, Colleen, our nurse leader, uh, Rachel, Jordan, who works with EMS. Uh, without them, this would not be possible. Talking about enablers, we have to talk about CarePoint. CarePoint is a group of ER docs, neurologists. Uh, they have believed deeply in the mission of medical education and have been the principal funders that have brought the Medical Minute uh, along and made this possible. So thank you so much to our, to our sponsors, CarePoint. Finally, we want to thank all of you, the fine men and women, nurses, paramedics, pharmacists, ED docs who work in the emergency department. As we said in the beginning, this podcast is for you, and we hope that you found it enjoyable. The last thing I need to mention to you is the next podcast. The Emergency Medical Minute takes pride in being raw, in being real, and in being relevant. And our next podcast is going to be live. It's going to be a live two- to three-hour podcast in front of an audience, hopefully you'll be in it, that talks all about one of the biggest crises facing medicine at this time, and that is the crisis of narcotic and opioid abuse. We're going to have thought leaders from across the country there. We're going to have leaders here in Colorado, and we're going to bring you the most up-to-date science on opioid addiction and the cutting-edge treatments on how to address opioid addiction and also opioid abuse in your emergency departments. Get out your calendars. September 14th, Wednesday, September 14th, will be our next live edition of the Emergency Medical Minute. Signing off, this is Don and Dylan. Thank you for listening to the Emergency Medical Minute.